0: Here.
1: Kristen Lovelady-Dixon. Here. Betsy Pringle. Here. Larry Totally. Here. Rick Whitney. Here. Ruth Wright. Here. Thanks.
2: Okay,
3: so welcome and officially welcome to our new council member, Kristen Lovelady-Dixon. Yay, we're glad to have you with us. Um, And, For our agenda tonight, we do need to add an item on the agenda. This tends to happen every January. Uh, We do have an annual election of officers and that didn't get on the January agenda. And so um, I'm going to ask for approval, uh, have a motion to approve adding that to our agenda. We'll just put it in uh, uh, item 10 on our agenda. And uh, so with that, we're going to have some minutes to approve, we've got council member reports, uh, then the audience participation, anybody who has comments. Uh, Then we're going to go into the comp plan amendments for 2021, final action on those, followed by the tree code review, and then uh, an overview of the high performance building standards code amendments. Follow that would be followed by election of officers. Could could I get a motion to add that to the agenda, please?
4: So moved, second. second.
3: Okay, it's been moved and seconded. All in favor of adding election of officers as item ten to our agenda for tonight. Signify, signify by saying aye. Uh, aye.
5: aye.
3: Aye. Aye. Opposed. Okay, so we've got it. So our first item is the r- approval of minutes for the November twenty second, twenty twenty one meeting. Do we have any additions or corrections to those minutes? Hearing none, can I have a motion to approve the minutes as written?
5: So
6: moved.
3: Okay, it's been moved by John Kapler. Is there a second?
6: Second.
3: Seconded by Ruth Wright to approve the November 22, 2021 minute, minutes. All in favor say aye. Aye. Aye.
7: aye. aye. aye.
3: aye. Opposed? Let the record show that Bill Goggins has joined the meeting and we are uh, Bill in the process of approving the minutes. So we've we've approved the November 22nd minutes. Now we're in the December 27th, 2021 minutes. Any additions or corrections to those minutes as presented?
2: Larry. Under item four, under the uh, council member reports and comments, the the last line, uh, Member totally advised tree code would be presented to city council at their January 18th and 24th meetings. What I really stated, I believe was January 4th and 18th meetings.
3: Okay. Any other additions or corrections? So with that correction, do we have a motion to approve the minutes as corrected? Moved move, move by Larry and John. Can I take your motion as a second? Yes. Okay. It's been moved and seconded. All in favor of approving the December twenty seventh, twenty twenty one minutes. Signify by saying aye.
0: Aye. Aye.
3: Opposed. Okay. Council member reports and comments is our next item. I want to thank uh, Jeremy and Taylor for uh, and John for filling in for me because I had a, a pre existing commitment. Uh, for the orientation of Kristen, which went, I think I've heard very well, but I'll let you guys comment on it. <laughs> um, and it, it included a slide um, presentation that I asked uh, Jeremy to send out to all committee, all of our Houghton Committee Council members because it's, it's good and it's just a good reminder for us all to, to just review the, uh, the whole basis for the planning process that we're involved in. Um, John, Kristen, any comments on the orientation?
0: I would echo what you said. It's uh, for me, great overview of the planning process, and I really appreciate the time that went into creating the presentation, but also curating it for me, um, live in person. So, thank you. Great,
4: John. Okay. Um, I agree and welcome aboard.
3: Yeah. Okay, and then I've got a a report. At our last meeting, we um, established a a committee that will be guiding the process uh, for Houghton Community Council's response to the efforts to sunset our organization. And that consists of me, John and Larry. Um, Where we're at is The legislation has been introduced, um, it's House Bill 1769 uh, and we have uh, engaged uh, an attorney to identify legal challenges that will be presented to the legislature. Um, uh, the The bill has been referred to the local government committee and there will be a hearing this Wednesday morning, as at least that's what it's scheduled that could change, but there's a hearing scheduled. Uh, my understanding is there'll probably be very limited uh, speaking opportunities. And so we'll probably have to be very, only a few of us will be able to speak. I, it's not like something everybody's going to be able to, but you can all participate. Actually, uh, I encourage you and all members of the public to just go to the Washington State Legislature's website look up House Bill 1769, where you can find out the status of the bill at any time. And then you can also indicate whether you support it uh, or you're in opposition to it, or you are neutral. And also you can add comments. And I I welcome and encourage everybody to to be part of that process. Um, Last week, the city council posted a letter to all citizens of Uh, the city in support of Sunsetting Houghton Community Council. We, our our committee, uh, John, Larry and I are are working up a a letter in response to that, which will be presented or at least uh, sent to the legislators, uh, along with another letter that has been previously prepared. And we expect that that'll be um, out either tomorrow or Wednesday, and we'll certainly copy you on it. uh, John, Larry, do you guys have anything you'd like to add to what I just said regarding our committee's uh, actions? Oh, okay. Um, any other council member reports or comments? Any Anything?
5: Okay, Rick, this is Bill.
3: Yes. Yeah, just raise your hand, Bill, or, or use either use the hand signal or just raise your hand and I'll know, yeah. Can you hear me? I I can, and so go ahead.
5: Okay. Um, I missed the the announcement of the agenda, but are we gonna have officer elections? Yeah,
3: yeah, we we added it to the agenda and and it will be, yeah, thanks, I appreciate that, but yeah, we we were aware that that needed to be added to the agenda, so thank you. Uh, Anything else? So with that, uh, I don't, Jeremy, is there any work program review that we need to discuss?
8: <clears throat> Excuse me, I choke as soon as I unmute myself. <clears throat> uh, no,
3: the, the planning work
8: program is uh, being, rec- being reviewed for a recommendation by the Planning Commission right now. It will go to City Council in February. And so we'll report back once we've got that ready to go on what that's looking like for 22
3: 23. Yeah. Actually, what I think would really be good, and I think I mentioned to you, I think I sent you an email to this effect that it would be really good for you and I and John. Once you get that, you, once the city has their own plan for the, the work program for the year, both the city council and the funding commission, then let's get, get up front on it and, and get it on our schedule too so that we don't miss anything and yeah. make sure it's on our agenda as well. Yeah. So, great. Um, so we now have an opportunity for the... Um, members of the audience to speak to us on any topics and Jeremy, as usual, I am counting on you to monitor that process as I'm inept at at trying to handle anything technological. Do we have members of the audience that that would care to address us?
5: Betsy
8: Betsy. has raised her hand.
3: Okay, Betsy.
8: Betsy, I believe you're muted. So if you unmute yourself,
3: yes, she. Yeah.
0: Okay, how's that? That's good. You can hear me now.
3: Yeah. Please identify yourself, your yeah. address, and uh, that name and address is all we okay. really. Yeah.
0: Betsy Lewis, one two zero one four, Northeast Sixty Fifth Street, Kirkland. Okay. And I wish I wish to comment on the. Um, on the uh, updated tree code, which is, which is on your, the agenda tonight, a review yes. of that topic. So, um, I have two comments. First of all, I am concerned about the penalties for failure to, for violating the tree code by builders and developers. And I am concerned that the fines are just a slap on the wrist. I know that houses in my neighborhood, new construction, they're selling between three and a half and $4 million. And I see if um, the penalty for removing trees illegally is insufficient when you're talking about that kind of money. Um, my second comment is about um, code enforcement. And I understand that currently the city has two code enforcement officers who work Mondays through Fridays and there's nobody, no code enforcement person on duty on the weekends. And recently I have heard of three instances uh, where complaints have been made about illegal removal of trees taking place on the weekend and there's no one to investigate. So by the time code enforcement comes in on Monday morning, the deed is done. And I wish the city would find some way to stagger the schedules of those code enforcement officers, hire additional code enforcement, or some other creative way so that there is effective code enforcement for tree removal. And my third comment is about um, code enforcement for viability of newly planted trees. On my walks, I frequently see trees that are newly planted by builders, and they they're dying. And I I believe the city has some uh, rules in place for making sure those trees are get what they need to survive for a period of time. But I think uh, there needs to be more code enforcement on whether that's happening, or maybe. I wanna make sure that in the rules, there is a sufficient amount of time for trees to be able to survive. Last summer is a perfect example with the heat dome. So, but thank you for allowing me to comment.
3: Thank you. Those are great points, Betsy. Appreciate it. Do We have anyone else,
6: Jeremy?
8: Uh, Deirdre Dawn johnson has her hand up.
3: Okay. Welcome Deirdre.
6: Hey, thanks Rick. Thanks council. I also would like to talk about the uh, tree ordinance and the amendments. Um, Recently, a tree right behind my house was severely damaged. The roots were just hacked. But the tree is 39 inches in diameter and it was cut eight feet from the trunk. And so all of you are familiar with the ordinance. You're probably as astounded as I am that something like that can happen. Um, I think that the tree protections need to be tightened. And I think a very simple way to do it is there's a few places in the modifications on the existing code where you can just make a few tweaks uh, section 93 sorry 9530.3 tree redemption redemption plan requirements tree retention plan shall contain the following information and then it says unless waived by the planning official i think we need to remove that clause unless waived by the planning official because tree retention should not be discretionary I think there's another few places, 9532, section two, part eight. In addition to the above, the planning office, it says, may require the following if equipment is allowed to operate in the critical root zone. Change that to shall. 9532, 3C, the planning official shall require specific construction methods. 9532, Five additional requirements the planning official shall require additional tree protection mes- methods that are contis- consistent with accredited accepted urban forestry industry practices I think seeing how the actual ordinance as it stands now is not being properly enforced I think we need to tighten it up because um like Betsy mentioned, you know, we're seeing trees go down and it's just tragic. Thank you.
3: Thank you, Deidre. And, and just for the record, I appreciate I know that you did uh, include that. You sent a letter to the Hope community council and I presume everybody had a chance to read it and to basically you've just reiterated the points. Well, well taken. So we do pay attention to your letters. <laughs> Any other members of the public that wanna speak? Jeremy, you're uh, muted. Sorry.
8: I'm not seeing any other hands up at this point.
3: If not, then we will close that uh, agenda item and move into the city initiated comp plan amendments for 2021.
8: I will walk you through that tonight pretty straightforward
3: and this can Uh, be really brief
5: i think i have an
8: intro slide and then i will tell you kind of what's happened so you had um, you reviewed the amendments in september this is just our annual housekeeping amendments there was nothing particularly interesting this year Uh, planning commission held their public hearing in october city council adopted those amendments by ordinance in in december And so now um, you have your um, disapproval jurisdiction that you can exercise tonight. Um, We have a a resolution for you. It's 2022-1. So if you approve the comprehensive plan amendments as adopted, you would adopt that resolution.
3: Perfect. So uh, we did review these previously and opted not to participate in the public hearing because we had no issues with the amendments that were being uh, proposed. So, uh, unless anyone has any further questions. Oh, up John, John, talk, talk to us. Uh,
4: Jeremy, thank you very, very much. I just had a question about the indoor recreation and aquatic center. Your answer back to us was that um, there is uh, a site that people could go to and make comments and that sort of thing. And my question is, in review of those, I've not reviewed them. I don't know how to review them. Has there been one outstanding thing about this other than we have a need is there one thing that really jumps out to the city that people are talking about
8: I think that's it I think it's the consistent um, need that you've heard so as the parks um, and community services department is going to do the pros plan with the city council I think that um, emerges as a as a key theme for the community again and probably will until we figure out a way to address that need okay.
4: thank you
3: Okay, any other questions? If not, I would welcome, oh, I see Larry's hand up. Larry, there you go.
2: Not really a question, just wanted to thank staff for addressing the comments and the questions we did have at the last meeting. I forgot we hadn't seen those before and and came back and looking through the package, it was very thorough, so appreciate that, thanks. Yeah, apologies, we actually meant to send that out via
8: email um, some time ago. And so when we were pulling the packet together, we were like, oh no, we neglected to do that. So um, thanks, Larry. and sorry for them being a little bit late.
3: We appreciate it. So I would welcome a a resolution 2022-1 to approve the 2021 city initiated amendment to the comp plan applicable within the Houghton Community Municipal Corporation. Uh, as adopted by Ordinance 4774 by the Kirkland City Council. Can I get a motion to that effect? So
6: moved.
3: It's been so moved by Ruth Wright. Do we have a second? Second. Seconded by Bill Goggins. Any further discussion? Discussion? All in favor say aye. 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 Opposed. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. And with that, we move on to an update on the council review of the tree code. Jeremy. Yes. (laughs) Now we're for some fun.
8: (laughs) Um, If you haven't, I'm sorry, if you haven't met um, Katie Hogan yet, uh, you all realize that Deb Powers um, resigned from the city uh, last year to take a job in Edmonds. And so Katie, is our development review arborist who has agreed, who agreed to step in and be our acting urban forester to get this project to the finish line. Obviously, we, you have been at this for a long time. So Katie will take um, part of the presentation. I'll start and kind of finish it and then we'll just deal with whatever questions you have along the way. Uh, you can see my screen. Okay. So what we'll go through tonight um, is an update on where we're at in the treat code process. Um, The high level, Katie will get into a high level overview of what the current draft looks like that um, City Council is considering for adoption. Um, We'll step back as requested by um, Rick and John and and give you a review of what the Houghton Community Council recommendations looked like a couple years ago um and we'll try to do a summary of how we see the current draft of the code um, playing out in terms of what your recommendation was at the time so i hope you find that helpful and then we'll talk about next steps as i noted we have been at this for a while since 2018 Um, so between 2018 and the end of 2019 houghton planning commission community meetings spent a lot of time um, coming up with a recommendation on the on a draft of the tree code Um, Houghton made their recommendation to the Planning Commission uh, late 2019, and then the Planning Commission then forwarded their recommendation on to City Council, which went to them in early 2020. So Council started that process um, and had a lot of questions. Really, it's clear that they want to dig in and and do a thorough review of it. Um, And then... COVID came along and uh, it was not a high priority for some period of time there for the city council um, under the governor's order and just under in terms of other business they were dealing with. So um, since May of 2021, it's back in front of city council. They're um, making progress on it, particularly since um, November, December, um, in a series of meetings of trying to give staff specific direction of the changes they'd like to see incorporated into the draft code. That's kind of where we're at right now. We um, spent a lot of time just doing background overviews with council, as you can see in that diagram. Starting in November, we've broken the code into multiple sections, um, kind of three primary sections to get council guidance um, for potential additional revisions. November 16th, we took them just the simple, straightforward kind of non-policy minor amendments um, and got their direction on that. Um, with requesting a number of changes to it. Uh, January 4th, we went back with what we call part two, which was miscellaneous sections. These were some more moderate or major policy level amendments. And the focus there was really on the regulations for homeowner tree removal. So tree removal without development. Um, February 1st, uh, we will be going back uh, with the part three, which consists primarily of the trees and development codes. Um, They have this, but we have not, staff has not received any direction from them at this point in terms of uh, input on additional changes they'd like to see. Then the goal is in February to kind of, for them to take a look at the overall revised consolidated draft and then um, potentially adopt as soon as March 1st. So that's where we're at with the process. Um, through those early reviews of the code, council talked about their primary objectives, which, similar to the community councils, um, you talked about it was trying to um, find a, goal to, a path to reach the forty percent um, canopy restore the forty percent canopy goal, and have a predictable property owners' both for uh, predictable code, both for property owners and for developers. Uh, at this point. If there are any questions on that, I, I'll turn it over to Katie and Katie can walk us through some of the specifics. And then if you don't, I would say, if you have kind of technical questions, feel free to ask Katie on that. But then when she's done overviewing the current draft of the code, I'll kind of walk you back through Houghton's recommendation. And that's where we'd hope to field any additional questions or, or
3: comments. I, I, I'm i gonna just let you know that um, with the view that, you know, in order to, in order to see your, uh, Your computer screen, I can't see all of our members. So if one of our members uh, raises their hand, Jeremy, I'm going to, if you can see everybody, I'm going to rely on you to call it to my attention that there's somebody who wants to ask a question.
8: Yeah, I was going to say, I just expanded my screen
3: so I can see you all now. Okay, thank you. Okay, thanks, sir.
1: Okay, Okay. well, thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. And uh, good evening, everyone, members of the council. It's nice to meet everybody. Jeremy kind of briefly introduced me, but um, I am a certified arborist and a qualified tree risk assessor. And prior to starting with the city back in May, I worked as a private consulting arborist for about seven years and I, during that time I worked all throughout the Seattle region applying you know dozens of different local tree codes. Um, So I was hired on as the development review arborist with the city and then I took on that role as interim urban forester back in October. So I'm happy to be here and happy to kind of help work through these different tree code amendments. Nice to meet everybody. Um, So with that uh, let's dive into the amendments. So Council has provided staff with a lot of feedback throughout the duration of this project on how we can improve tree protection for large trees and the purpose of creating these new mitigation standards for landmark trees is so that we have standards that are applied consistently throughout the city Um, and with that staff has proposed this new section to chapter 95. So this is, it's not stated actually on this slide, but it's chapter 9523. And this code section does reflect prior city council direction, which includes um, reducing the landmark tree size down to 26 inches diameter, uh, establishing robust mitigation measures, requiring development wait periods after a landmark tree is removed and incorporating a fee and loo concept. So we'll get into a lot of this in more detail throughout the presentation. That's kind of a brief overview of the landmark tree focus. So next slide, Jeremy. So this chapter 9523, it is a new section to the code and it's intended to function as this umbrella section, which covers landmark tree removals, both for private property tree removals and non-development related tree removals. And it specifically talks about what the mitigation standards are for if a landmark tree is removed. So this section does propose that a tree permit it would be required if you wanted to remove any landmark tree citywide, even if that is within your 12 month allowances. And so while these landmark trees wouldn't necessarily have to qualify as a hazard or nuisance tree, um, as long as there's no special circumstances on the lot, such as critical areas, et cetera, then you would have to submit a tree removal permit. And really the intention of that is to allow staff the time to to track these removals and to be able to enforce those mitigation trees that would be required And both the Planning Commission and City Council did express wanting robust mitigation standards for the replacement of landmark trees. So to meet this outcome, staff is proposing that each landmark tree be replaced with three new trees to help offset that canopy loss. And the proposed code also proposes that those particular mitigation trees, specifically for landmarks, Um, that those be selected from a city approved list, which includes tree species that would reach a large size upon maturity. So instead of replacing a 40 inch Douglas fir tree with a um, Eddie's White Wonder Dogwood, it would have to be a tree that would be kind of equal to or superior to that tree being removed. And this ensures that that canopy loss is being mitigated for this also council also expressed a desire to include a fee and lieu option for landmark trees. So staff is proposing this kind of pay to play model which requires that all landmark trees where if they cannot be physically or if they cannot be feasibly replanted on the subject property that they be accounted for through a fee and lieu and that money would go directly into the city urban forestry account to help fund tree management and replacement efforts. I do see we have a hand up. Do we want to address questions kind of throughout the presentation or wait until the end? I, I
3: like the idea of being able to ask as we go or else it'd be easy okay. to forget them while it's yeah. well fresh. If that's okay with you, is it, does that work for you? And if so, can you call on people? Because I can't see who's got. Yeah, hand absolutely.
1: Up. <laughs> yeah, that, that works well. Um, okay. Betsy, it looks like you're the first one I see. So Yeah, I just... Um... We had a
7: member from the audience earlier, Betsy Lewis, um, commented on the fines not being high enough. And um, this seems awfully low to me for a landmark tree because I know that those things can, it just the lumber in them can (laughs) go for $30,000 easily. So I'm just wondering if, I was wondering if this was what she was commenting on. And if so, I would agree that that is way too low.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, and I I believe what Betsy was referring to earlier was trees that are illegally removed. Um, I I would need a little clarification on that, but this is specifically for trees that are allowed, permitted by the city for removal. If a tree of landmark size was removed illegally, it would be subject to our code enforcement, uh, the Kirkland Municipal Code, which would be much larger fines. I believe a Landmark size tree would be a $20,000 fine. So it would need a little more clarification on that, but there are um, you know different fees associated with, you know, the intent behind the removal.
8: Thank you. Self, yeah. uh, just to add that uh, Betsy, the, the council did update the tree penalties on the enforcement standards uh, about last a year, year. ago, yeah. last year. Last year. Um, the increase, the civil penalty associated with illegal tree removal, and, and tying that to size. I think previously it was like, I want to say, three hundred dollars a day, but it's gotten to be substantially more. In addition um, to just the penalty, there's also tree restoration required, which and that gets into the plantings or the fuelwood, the restoration. Okay, John. Thank you. Yeah. yeah
1: thanks, Betsy.
4: Katie thank you. Nice to meet you. Good to meet you. Uh, The fee and loo option, your second bullet and you noted that it applies only if adequate space doesn't exist. While you're going through that, would you just explain that a little bit more uh, earlier? Actually last week Rick and I had a, a meeting with the mayor and the vice mayor and actually this was brought up and it didn't sound at the time when we were discussing with them that it was tied to space on the site. So um, if you just help explain that, that'd be great. Thank you.
1: Yeah, so it, it would be the fee and lieu is the kind of last resort option. So if let's say a private homeowner wants to remove a landmark tree that they're permitted to allow, they would be required to work in good faith with the city to try to physically replant those on their property. But let's say, you know, they just really have a tight lot and there's a lot of site constraints, then that's when they could request to pay the fee in lieu after demonstrating those couldn't be planted on the site and the city would approve them um, the ability to pay that fee and lieu, and really the same kind of process would go for development projects as well. So throughout the, de- the development review process, it would be, you know, the expectation would be that those trees are planted on the subject property, um, and it would only be cases where there isn't adequate space that the fee and lieu could be used. Um, because these, we'll get into this in a moment, but because these landmark tree mitigation trees are actually in addition to the tree density credit requirements for development projects, you know, where we are likely to see a lot more trees being planted. So we might run into some scenarios where there's just not enough space on a property to replant.
5: Thank you.
1: That answer your question? Okay. okay, Bill, looks like you're next.
5: Yeah, thank you, Katie. My question is, um, if you, this for the fee and lieu option, the um, 1,050 per landmark tree, is that, so the scenario would be if uh, um, someone wants to remove a landmark tree and they can't do the three to one replacement, is the landmark, um, the 1,050 fee, is that times three for replacing the one landmark tree or is it just one?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And I do go over that um, on another slide, but it would be for all three replacement trees the fee is 1050 so let's say you could plant one tree on your property but you wanted to pay two through fee and lieu you would just have to pay that portion for those two you couldn't plant which right now is at 350 per mitigation tree but council during our last meeting did express more uh, some desire in making sure that number really does cover the city's cost to plant a new tree. So that number is being potentially adjusted to increase a little bit, but that is what it's currently set at. So it would be 350 per mitigation tree and there's three mitigation trees required per landmark tree. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Looks like Rick, we've got another question.
3: Yeah, Katie, I'm wondering, are there any conditions that would cause or could cause a permit application to be denied?
1: Okay, so that's that's a great question. And we'll kind of get into this on some future slides. So I might hold off on that Very question good. because that will be explored. Okay.
3: Great. Yeah,
1: um, I don't think I see any other hands up, so we will move on. Okay.
3: I want to take your hands down, those of you who got your hands are raised. Bill. Thank you. <laughs> Bill. <laughs> there we go.
1: Okay, so this might answer some of your questions, um, especially the next few slides. So here we have an example to explain what this might look like. And this is specifically related to a private property owner not associated with any development activity. So if you have an 8,500 square foot lot and you're requesting to remove one landmark tree under your 12 month allowance, then you would be required to submit a permit to the city with the associated permit fee, which is around $240 and meet the three to one mitigation standard so, if there are no, you could only do this if there are no special restrictions on your lot, such as wetlands, streams, landslide hazards, if you're in Holmes Point overlay, shoreline buffer, or if you have an existing tree maintenance agreement. Um, the city would then, if you don't have any of those conditions on your lot, the city would automatically approve that tree for removal without having to meet the city's hazard or nuisance criteria. So, if this permit is then approved the property owner has to select three replacement trees to plant on their site from that city approved list I mentioned earlier and after working in good faith with the city if you cannot feasibly plant on your site due to constraints the property owner would be required to pay that fee in lieu which um, I mentioned those fees earlier so that's 350 per replacement tree Um, And this fee like I mentioned is still being reviewed by Council so that is subject to change, and this money would then go directly toward tree planting projects that are led by the city with the intent um, of you know restoring the canopy from those landmark trees that are removed. And the purpose behind mandating this permitting process, it really is to help kind of minimize the amount of healthy landmark trees that are being removed in the city and to ensure that the city has the ability to follow up on those mitigation trees. I think we had a a call from the audience earlier about the city being able to make sure those trees establish and survive. And so this would help to fund the city's ability to do that. So next slide, Jeremy. So there are several and we'll kind of touch back on the landmark tree mitigation concept when we get into the development slides. Um, But moving on from that, there are some revisions proposed to 9525. So this, if you're familiar with the existing tree code, this is previously chapter 9523. Um, And this is all tree removals not associated with development activity. And the goal of amending this chapter is to make sure to establish a process and standards to slow the loss of canopy and work toward the city's canopy goals. Um, One of the major challenges with the existing tree code is this balance between property owner rights and sustaining the city's urban forest. And to address this the draft code does propose increasing the tree removal allowances per property based on property size. So currently all properties are allowed two removals per every 12 months, and this would increase to either two, three, or four removals based on the increased property size. You can see the categories under the proposed code section here, and that would be the removal allowances per 12 months. Um, And again, this only applies to properties that don't have other restrictions, critical areas, so on and so forth. Um, As with the existing code, trees that meet the hazard or nuisance criteria and are approved through the tree removal permit process would not count toward these removal allowances, though this would be in excess of any you know properly permitted hazard tree on your property. Okay, next slide, Jeremy. Okay, so with the in addition to increasing the tree removal allowances based on property size, staff has also proposed increasing the minimum number of trees break, required to remain on your property. And this corresponds with the number of increased allowances. So currently, it's you're allowed two trees per every 12 months, but you have to have two trees remaining on your property in order to utilize the allowance program that the city has. So as an example, a property owner that has a 5,000 square foot lot that would like to remove one regulated 20 inch fir tree, but still has four trees remaining on the lot of those required two, they would be allowed to remove the tree and submit a free of charge notification to the city and no mitigation would be required. So this is really similar to the existing code, it's just kind of increased according to those, those increased allowances. Okay, and next slide, Jeremy, and then we can open it up to some questions. So for trees that are those last trees to remain on a property, more robust mitigation standards are being proposed. So this would be either one, two, or three replacement trees depending on the size of the removed tree. You can see in the table here, the smaller category would be one new tree. The middle range category would be two new trees and anything landmark tree-sized or above would be three three new mitigation trees. So for instance, if you had a 15,000 square foot lot and you want to remove two 15 inch trees, and you only have one additional tree remaining on the lot of those required three, the property owner would have to submit a tree removal permit demonstrating those trees meet the city's hazard or nuisance criteria, and they would have to mitigate accordingly. So they would have to pay the permit fee and submit an arborist report showing the trees are a hazard or nuisance and mitigate with two total trees, which is very similar to the proposed or sorry the existing code. Um, This concept is being reviewed by City Council currently and this might change, there is some desire by Council that was expressed at the January fourth meeting to allow those last remaining trees to be removed if there are very substantial and robust mitigation measures. So staff is still kind of working through what that would look like and potentially bringing that, and will be bringing that to council, I believe at the February 15th meeting. Um, looks like we have a question from John. Oh, you're muted, John.
4: Sorry about that. My lips are moving, but nothing. Right? <laughs> Um, would you walk through an ex- example quickly for me, just because sometimes the examples don't hit everything. So if a property owner has 15,000 feet, so they're, it's greater than 10,000 feet, they're allowed to take down three trees and they wanna remove three trees, two are regulated 15 inch and one is a 26 inch tree. There is no disease, there is no hazard They want to remove the trees, but they have six other 10-inch trees on their property. So they have plenty of trees. Explain the process to me. And And the focus is, number one, they're taking down big trees. Number two, they have lots of big trees on their lot. Whether or not that's enough for the calculation, I want you to explain. Number three, there's really no disease or hazard. It's all based on desire.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So per the the proposed code that staff has shown to council over the last couple of meetings, If you had a landmark tree you wanted to remove and two additional just regulated trees and you're well you're above your last trees required to remain, you could utilize your three per 12 month removal allowances to remove all three of those trees, you would be required to mitigate three to one for the landmark tree and submit a permit and pay the permit fee so that the city can enforce and follow up on those mitigation trees. You would not be required to mitigate for your two other regulated trees. And those could just go through the standard notification process. Um, So per the current code, that would be allowed. Um, Council has expressed desire at the last meeting, which staff is still working on revising the code to limit landmark tree removals per every 12 months. Um, That was consistent with the planning commission recommendation and was not in the draft that was recently proposed to Council. So that might come up um, where you would only be allowed one landmark tree per 12 month as part of your allowance. Um, With there's some potential to maybe bank one additional landmark tree, and that's still really being flushed out right now so I can't speak to it exactly but Per what's being proposed right now, you would be able to remove all three of those trees without them meeting the hazard or nuisance criteria, but there would be more robust mitigation measures required.
4: And then a follow-up to that is the 26 inch landmark tree would have three new trees required to be planted in its stead. They're supposed to be on property. Part of my criteria was the property had lots of other trees. I'm saying beyond the required amount in the code. And from the homeowner's perspective, far too many trees, which is why I want to remove trees anyway, speaking as a homeowner. This isn't me, but as a homeowner, Um, what is the criteria for judging if I can plant those trees somewhere? Place else or pay to have those plant trees planted on a different property, because I want to take the tree down. It's not a hazard, not a nu- nuisance.
1: Yeah, so the criteria would be that the homeowner who's submitting the request would need to provide the city with a replanting plan. They'd have to show us the location and the species of the trees they're proposing and then they would have to make some type of case as to why they think this is appropriate for the site, you know, potentially have a qualified professional back up that perspective or that um, position. And if that's the case, the city would then evaluate that and say, yes, we agree or no, I think you're just trying to evade the provisions of this chapter. Um, so it would be, you know, up to the planning official to kind of make that final determination, but the applicant would need to provide us with the baseline work to be able to review that. Thank you. Yeah. Any other questions on the increased tree removal allowances or mitigation standards? don't see any hands in the audience so i will move on okay so getting into hedge trees um city council has expressed desire to incorporate some code provisions that would allow for overgrown poorly planted and really difficult to maintain hedges to be removed within that 12-month allowance so currently the code doesn't really allow for that um, that flexibility to remove these hedges that are very difficult to maintain Um, so The definition of hedge trees, which was discussed and reviewed by council at the November 16th meeting, it's defined as five or more trees of the same species with overlapping or touching crowns, which have been planted and maintained in a linear formation, typically to function as a screen or a barrier. Um, Next slide, Jeremy. And so to incorporate this direction into the proposed code, it allows property owners to submit a permit with the associated fee for the removal of hedge trees. Um, They would be subject to -to one-to-one replacement. However, the planning official may allow reduced planting requirements based on available space. I think there's definitely an understanding that sometimes property owners may just not want a big kind of unruly difficult to maintain hedge. So that would be examined through the permitting process and the review of that permit. Um, Again, the permit would be required because it's really the city's only way to be able to enforce and follow up on these mitigation trees. Um, And while hedges can be difficult to maintain, they do provide a lot of canopy cover um, in, in a lot of scenarios. Okay, next slide. All right. so another issue that has come up with the existing code is that trees are often preemptively removed during the sale of properties to avoid provisions of the development related tree code. So in order to close this loophole proposed amendments includes adding development wait periods following the removal of trees. So this would be for any tree that's removed as part of a tree removal allowance, so not a hazard or nuisance tree, and this proposal is to apply a 12-month development wait period for following the removal of a regulated tree, so that's a tree less than 26 inches, and a 24-month wait period for the removal of landmark sized trees, and this would be applicable for um, development of single-family dwellings, cottages, carriage units, two, three-unit homes, short plats, and subdivisions, and- City Council is currently reviewing these provisions and they may change slightly depending on feedback. At the last council meeting where they saw this, they were generally pretty supportive of the 12 and the 24 month, but there was a little bit of division on that. So that's gonna be going back to council at the February 15th meeting for discussion. Any questions on development wait period before we move on to Tree retention standards during development. Can
7: maybe?
1: Sorry, let's go, Betsy first. I saw hand up first, and then Rick.
7: Let's let's. I'd like to have a little bit more clarification. So this would be. Let's say I am a home owner, and I'm trying, and I want to sell my property, and you're saying that if I cut down a regulated tree then nothing can happen on the property for 12 months. Is that what, is that what you're saying?
1: It is. Um, I will. I did forget to mention that this would include a hardship clause. So that's currently being drafted by the city. And that was definitely a, a high request by city council. And so that would be, you know, if you're a homeowner and you really just weren't aware of these provisions, you don't have any malicious intent Um, You know, really what we're trying to prevent is developers that come in and they're intentionally cutting trees down to evade provisions of the tree protection code. So that hardship clause would be, it's not fully um, fleshed out yet, but it would likely be in the form of an affidavit from the homeowner, property owner saying, you know, I was not aware of this. I really didn't intend to cut these down, you know, in order to kind of go around these provisions. Um, So that that would be, that is certainly going to be um an outlet for property owners with this provision
7: all right so this is just sort of like um a deterrent is what this is it's it's not saving the tree canopy except when it acts as a deterrent that's correct it's yeah, you- it
1: really is to prevent, you know, let's say landmark sized trees, trees located in required yards, um, grove trees, you know, trees that really have these high ecological values from being removed preemptively that could potentially have been retained as part of that development project. But we're you know, maybe the applicant, the developer wanted to just kind of have a clean slate to work with. So it it really is, you know, this was written into the code because this has been an ongoing issue over the last several years. (laughs) Um, so it's, it's not really meant to, you know, penalize homeowners that really just want to do some tree removals on their property and, and they're not, you know, trying to necessarily get around the tree code provisions. Um,
8: and this is, um, This picture on Katie's slide is a real old example in Kirkland where a developer, before you apply for permits, if we don't have a permit in our system, you can still apply for tree removal. So this kind of girdling technique is a cheap way to not bear the expense of actually taking the tree down, but you kill it in essence. And then when you come in for a development permit, you say, well, that's not a a viable tree, so city, you can't regulate it.
7: Oh my God. So that's the... (laughs) It that's happens the, a lot. <laughs> that's the oh kind God.
8: of abuse, uh, the loophole we're trying to close here.
7: Thank
1: you.
3: Rick, question? Just help me remember, so any tree that is, what, above 6-inch DBH, or is it 8-inch, is a regulated tree? 6-inch, yeah. 6-inch, that's what I thought. So, it, so you take down one 6-inch tree, and that means, I mean, anything between six and 26 means that you're not eligible for your lot to be uh, <laughs> have a development permit for a year. Huh?
1: Yeah, correct. Unless the tree was removed under the hazard or nuisance tree permit, um, that that would be how this provision applies. Um, like I mentioned to Betsy, there is the opportunity for homeowners to submit that hardship clause if it was, um, you know, just them happening to do happening to do some cleaning up on their property and, and they weren't aware of these provisions.
3: Yeah, or, it seems like that could happen real easily.
1: <laughs>
7: or if it was one of the two that you could take down per year, right? that's okay.
1: No. So this would, this does apply to your tree removal allowances. Yeah. this.
7: (laughs) That's the point. (laughs) You get what now? It's not. Okay.
1: So Hmm. this does apply this uh, preemptive, the development wait period does apply to your tree removal allowances. So while you are able to remove, you know, your two trees per year, depending on your property size, if you were to remove them and you know, maybe your property was kind of in the middle of a sale and then it was purchased by a developer. Um, You know, what we've seen a lot throughout the city is that developers will only buy houses with the condition that the property owner let them remove these trees prior to purchasing the property. So that's, I mean, that's really what this, the intention of this is. It's like I said, it's not to make life difficult for homeowners. It really is to just try to um, close that loophole that we realized was in the existing code. Wow. So there will be opportunities and, and ways and avenues for homeowners to make sure that you know they aren't stuck to, with this provision if it really was you know not of malicious intent.
7: Yeah, let's say that you take down to a tree and then three months later you decide you need you need to sell your house. that wouldn't be a I mean yeah right? it's just during whatever when your house is actually for sale and you'd have to prove that or something.
1: Well, it would just be, let's say you, you know, you cut down some trees, you didn't know you have to sell, maybe this was a family emergency, and you ended up selling your property, that would, that's exactly what that hardship clause exists for, you know, for property owners to be able to say, you know, hey, I, I, I really didn't expect this to happen. I, I need to be able to sell my property. And the city would, of course, you know, the director would review that. And, and that would be a scenario where that hardship clause would apply. Okay,
5: looks like we have Bill. Question from Bill. Yeah, that just seems to, to go against property rights. I mean, people own their, their houses, their property for a number of years. And if they take down a tree and then sell the property, they have to put it in for a hardship clause in order to have the property to be developed within the next 12 or 24 months, depending on the size of the tree that was removed. Even though it was removed validly with a permit, you're telling us that. Um, these, these people's property rights are, are based on a hardship clause being approved by the city or disapproved.
1: So that is, yeah that is the intention of this I mean it isn't necessarily to encroach on people's property rights I, a lot of times when these trees are girdled like Jeremy pointed out in the photo this this girdling does create a hazardous situation for all of the neighbors involved and so we just want to make sure that that's not occurring and that there isn't any risk being presented um, to neighbors from this act that's happening with this tree girdling um, you know the, the I will say that the hardship clause has not been fully developed at this point and it hasn't been fully reviewed by council and so there's going to be more on this to come um, but i certainly encourage you to you know reach out to city council um, let them know your thoughts and comments and reach out to jeremy and i as well so we can make sure to you know consider that when we're developing that hardship clause
8: and bill i'll, I'll talk a little bit more about where houghton left this off in their recommendation but i, I this was an area where the community council recommended that it apply to landmark trees, but not, not necessarily trees below the landmark size. So yeah. we'll, we'll cover that more a bit towards the end of the presentation. But that's exactly the conversation you had with your
5: recommendations. Yeah. Okay. Thank you.
1: I, I see a few hands up. I don't think we've heard from Larry yet, though.
2: Uh, mine's just a pretty simple question. On the title up there, it says detached dwellings, cottages, carriage units. What about ADUs?
1: This also applies accessory dwellings. Okay. Yeah, that wasn't updated. Yeah, <laughs> it does say that in the code though. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thanks, good observation, good attention to detail. <laughs> okay, Um. next slide, Jeremy, please. Okay, so now we're now moving on to proposed regulations associated with development activity. Um, These code amendments are currently being reviewed by city council and will be discussed at the February 1st city council meeting. So just keep in mind, these may be subject to change based on feedback and direction received from city council, but we wanted to give you guys kind of a high level preview of what city council is going to see. So based on prior council direction, um, when this project began, staff has revised This tree retention and protection standards during redevelopment with the purpose of promoting site planning building and development practices that work to avoid removal or destruction of trees. Trees and vegetation avoid unnecessary disturbance to the city's natural vegetation and provide landscape landscape buffers to the effects of built and paved areas. So when formulating these amendments, staff-based revisions off of prior council direction received, including overall tree protection, assessing tree retention during early phases of review, prioritizing protection of large trees, requiring robust mitigation measures to offset canopy loss, and providing a fee and lieu option for mitigation trees, and just generally providing overall more clarity and predictable for, predictability for developers. Next slide, please, Jeremy. So the first code amendment covered in this section includes revisions to the tree viability ratings to provide a more predictable and calculated approach. So this does include adding this tree condition table, which was in the planning commission draft. And this was abridged from different industry standards. Sorry, I've got a door opening behind me. <laughs> um, with uh, And this would be uh, specific detailed descriptions of each condition rating. So that's either excellent, good, fair or poor, Um, and these are intended to be used by the qualified professional arborist that's conducting these tree inventories. In addition to those condition ratings, the draft code also includes a viability matrix that would be used in conjunction with this table. So this is a new matrix. I don't believe Houghton has seen this yet. This would ensure that viability directly correlates to the tree conditions and minimizes subjectivity. And because viability does play such a big role when determining overall retention value and efforts that are required to retain a tree, using this more formulaic approach is um, really important to implementing the proposed tree code. Next slide, please, Jeremy. Okay, so for instance, uh, this is that viability matrix that I mentioned. If an arborist rates a tree as having a fair overall health condition and good structural condition, um, this tree would have an overall rating of viable. Uh, Another example, if a tree was rated as both fair health and fair structure, the tree would have an overall rating of non-viable. So um, just to ensure these ratings are to city standards, staff does conduct and will still continue to conduct a peer review of all Arborist reports, including a site inspection and has the ultimate authority over the viability designations. Um, Jeremy next slide please show that photo yeah so as an example, this is an image of a tree that the city would categorize as fair health per city standards, you can see notable canopy canopy declined that's observed to the point where this tree may not be suitable for retention efforts. Um, All right, next slide please any any questions before I move on about the viability ratings. Okay, great. Um, So once a tree is then deemed viable, a retention value is assigned based on the tree location. So this is really similar to the tier one and the tier two approach that was outlined um, and recommended in the planning commission draft that Houghton also reviewed. The language has been changed back to align with current terminology in the existing code um, just to kind of help with confusion um, potential confusion issues. So this would be any trees that are high retention value would be required for retention. This includes our grove trees, which is three or more trees um, that are over six inches diameter. We have added the clarification that at least one of those trees in the grove must be located in a required yard, common open space, or land use buffer. Um, It also includes landmark trees greater than 26 inches, which could be located anywhere on a property, um, even within the buildable area. And then it also includes any other tree located in a required yard, land use buffer, or a common open space. So this is kind of our existing high retention tree definition. Um, Now high retention value tree is kind of this umbrella um, term that includes groves, landmarks, and trees in required yards. Moderate retention value trees. This would be any other regulated tree that's viable that doesn't meet the criteria of a high retention value tree. This, for instance, this might be a tree that's less than 26 inches diameter that's located in the buildable area of the lot. Um, There is a lot that will be reviewed at the February 1st city council meeting regarding the site plan alterations and variations to development standards. The applicants would be required to explore if they have these trees. So I definitely encourage you to tune in for that meeting and follow up with us with any questions. Um, just one note on moderate retention value trees. I know those, I think, were originally removed from the Planning Commission draft because the language was so ambiguous about, you know, must be retained if feasible. That language still doesn't exist in the code, but staff instead is proposing some incentives for retaining moderate retention value trees, which could be, you know, for instance, if you can't retain a landmark tree, but you can retain a moderate retention value tree. You could kind of substitute those for each other and have reduced mitigation requirements. Those are still being reviewed by council and aren't kind of fully worked out yet, but that is the general kind of high level concept. Okay, any questions on her retention values before we move on to my last couple of slides here? Okay, oh, looks like John has one.
4: Uh, yeah, Katie, you, uh, you rifled through that so fast and I'm trying to apply different scenarios, et cetera. So um, you've got the grove, which is in some of the buildable yard and the landmark tree in the buildable yard, but none of the tree in the regulated tree trunk or canopy is in the setback. But the landmark tree and the groves are within the setbacks. And you use the word, the applicant shall be required. And I didn't understand if it was development standards like setbacks, bulk and mass, or if it was required to change design so we're not within these groves or landmark tree, root zone, canopies. And if you're gonna talk about that later, just say defer and we can get to it later.
1: So we aren't going to get into the specific details of those just for, because they haven't been fully reviewed by council or actually really reviewed at all by council yet um, since this new iteration of the draft. But um, I will say that You know, for instance, if you do have a tree that is very central to the buildable lot, even if it's, say, a landmark tree, you know, there we understand in the site plan and alterations are set up to kind of allow, to not force developers to retain trees in the center of the lot if they couldn't meet their, um, you know, the buildable potential for that lot and their development guarantees for that lot. So really the alterations that we'd be looking at is, you know, shifting the, reducing the front yard setback by five feet. So you can shift the house forward, reducing the rear yard setback by five feet, shift the house back, you know, flipping or mirroring the building footprint of the home, adjusting locations of decks, patios, path designs, minimizing rockeries to avoid impacts to trees. Um, you know, maybe a slight height adjustment in the building to avoid impacts to trees. So I believe that um, that draft is actually available for the, well, it was available for the January 18th council packet. So if you wanted to take a look at that under section 9530, you can look through those alterations that are being proposed. And I certainly recommend, you know, emailing Jeremy and I with any questions or clarification you have on those. Um, We originally were going to council on the 18th, but got bumped from the agenda due to time and the very long meeting. So we're taking that material back to council now on February 1st. So um, the packet is available online and um, recommend taking a look at that. And there's a lot of different specifics to it that um, will be addressed in next week. So Jeremy, did you wanna add anything to that regarding retention values?
5: No, I think that's that's about
8: right uh, john it's um kind of a similar uh um, arrangement as we talked about last time with the community council on planning commission, where it's kind of bundling incentives so things like height and reduced setbacks etc that tries to give the developer the tools to work around that tree and then also just requirements so it's things like you know, locating utilities and yeah, if it's boring it's the smaller utilities um, underneath the root zone, if that helps save a landmark tree. Um, potentially flipping house plans, if that can save a landmark tree. So it's kind of it's a bundle of requirements plus incentives. Betsy, yeah. you do you have a question? You had your hand up, but then it went down.
7: Yeah. Well, it's sorry, it's I think it's up. Um, maybe it's down. I don't know. Is it up or down? Anyway, yeah. I just I just wanted to say um, I'm finding the slides that are being presented are are much make it much easier for me to visualize what's going on. And I didn't know if this PowerPoint would be available at somewhere on the city's website where we could look look at it, or or, or somehow download it, or something like that. Because
1: Jeremy, you want
8: to take that one? <laughs> oh, yeah, we yeah. can certainly do that. Um, there's we have we'll have a more detailed version when we go to council next week so i think maybe what we can do is on the the three parts that council's broken it into um katie maybe we can post up uh, the powerpoint shows for each of those that hmm, yeah helps we'll, it'll we'll probably katie will probably be adding more graphics to it that might even help more than this so yeah is that okay betsy to wait
7: yeah yeah oh maybe. absolutely no no okay. it's just I, I'm just, it, I'm, I'm following Katie better than I'm following my packet. So um, I appreciate it. And can you tell me, is my hand up or down now? It's down. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Okay, great. Um, well, next slide please, Jeremy, just a couple more for me before Jeremy takes over. Okay, so.
5: Yes, it looks familiar the, to me also.
1: Okay, so that we did talk previously talk about this new code section 9523, which talks about landmark tree mitigation requirements. And this is intended to be an umbrella regulation that applies to sites undergoing development as well as single-family home, not a, homeowners not associated with development. So how this applies to tree sites undergoing development would be that landmark trees shall be retained. Um, unless they're authorized for removal after exploring site plan alterations and variations. Um, And if a landmark tree can't be feasibly retained, the applicant must work in good faith to replant three new trees on the subject property or pay the fee-in-lieu equivalent. So like I mentioned earlier, staff is still reviewing the actual fee-in-lieu cost to ensure that it accurately accounts for all of the costs for the city to do more tree planting projects. But um, just wanted to kind of bring it back to this concept just to reiterate that this would also apply to development projects. Okay, next slide, Jeremy. Okay, so based on planning commission recommendations and city council discussion, there was a desire to eliminate the phase development review process for short plats and subdivisions so manda- mandating the integrated development plans or the IDP process would allow for trees to be assessed very early on, which allows for more flexibility in site design. It would also provide more certainty to developers to know which trees they can or can't remove. And requiring IDPs would provide a lot more transparency to the community members that see these fences being constantly put up and taken down several times throughout the course of a typical phase development project. Um, As you guys probably already know, the IDP process is already standard for many other development types throughout the city, as well as in the Holmes Point overlay. Um, next slide. Okay, final slide from me. So um, 9534, which was previously 9533 goes over the tree replacement standards related to development activity. Um, This does have several revisions to help improve long-term canopy cover on new development sites. This includes increasing the per acre tree credit requirements from 30 to up to 50 credits. So as an example, on the right there, you can see that the current zoning, uh, the current code would require five tree credits or replanting with five new trees on a 7,500 square foot lot. And the proposed code would bump that up to nine. And by increasing these replanting standards, It does aim to help reach the city's canopy goals and it really accounts for mortality of supplemental trees that occurs during the establishment period as was noted by the resident that called in earlier additional revisions to this section include capping the tree density credits that any one existing tree can be awarded to 11 tree credits to help promote more replanting on sites being redeveloped and it does This would be in addition to those mitigation tree requirements for landmark trees. So, for instance, if you had a landmark tree on the property, you'd be required, no matter what, to do a three-to-one replacement on top of your fifty credit per acre requirement. The option for fee and lieu also exists. Um, This is in the current code, although it is pretty underutilized. This option is also in the proposed code and would more than likely be more often used by developers when there is isn't adequate space to replant on site since we have proposed increasing the replanting requirements. And finally, the section would prohibit small, slow growing hedges and other tree species such as arborvitae from counting toward the supplemental tree credits. Um, I'll also note that there was clarity added to the purpose and intent of this section. I know there's been a lot of confusion over the years that this section mandates the retention on development sites. So that is very clearly outlined in the purpose intent, saying that this is really strictly to be used for um, supplemental planting requirements on sites undergoing development and doesn't guide tree retention standards. Okay, that is the end of my slides. Any other questions before we jump over to Jeremy? Okay, John, start with you.
4: Uh, On the uh, planting on a property have, I think the way this chart reads um, is really wonderful because it's black and white. If you successfully negotiated grade school, you should be able to do this math. Um, One question I had though was on tree planting. Do you have any similar charts on, at least in the recommendation or pointing to the standards for, uh, for arborist? when you, when you plant a tree, how much soil base do you need? How much soil mass do you need to get that tree to maturity in certain areas? So we don't end up planting, um, uh, Douglas firs or something like that in a five foot setback between a property line and a house.
1: So, yeah, that's a great question. Um, we do have, I believe it's 95, um, 42. I want to say there are some planting specifications. I I don't think it refers specifically to soil volume. That is addressed a little bit more in our parking lot landscape requirements and tree planting requirements. Um, But that's a really great comment. And I think something that could be worth adding in. Um, I will also just add that, you know, it is kind of up to the applicant to have a qualified professional review their planting plan. And that should hopefully already be considered I do know that the code does propose that the plant location, it needs to be, you know, an adequate species for the site, for the conditions, um, for any potential site constraints. So that is in the code. It doesn't specifically speak to, you know, cubic soil volume based on size and species of tree at maturity, um, but it is kind of generally stated in the code right now.
4: Yeah, I'm just trying to get away from subjectivity is all. So thank you.
1: Yeah. Thanks, John. Okay, Rick.
5: There we go. I want to know uh, exactly what
3: other slow growing conifers you're referring to.
1: Yeah, so that list needs to be developed by the city. I think one example might be like a Hanoki cypress, um, like a dwarf. Um, spruce tree, uh, if you've seen those before, they're kind of really small, slow-growing conifers. Um, hinoki cypress, I might say, might not even be on that list because they can get a little big, and they do kind of grow as a standalone tree. Um, so I will say that list has not been developed yet. Um, I don't think it would be a very long list. It would be a pretty short list um, of just, you know, very particular species that one we see overplanted throughout the city, um, two that aren't doing very well, and that really don't provide adequate canopy cover for the amount of trees that are being removed on lots. Um, so those would kind of be that focus of that list, and that's certainly something that we would send out for review. And um, once that is developed,
5: okay.
3: Now
8: yeah, the arborvity was um, those of you who. <laughs> Um, have been with us on this from the beginning. They, we had an intern do a survey. Of, we just gave him all of our, like all recent short plats, a whole bunch of recent building permits to go out and, and inventory and take pictures. And one of his findings was just an extraordinary amount of overplanting of our variety. Yeah. it's small, it's cheap, it's, you know, stick it to, to John's point, stick it in a side yard setback and you're done. Um, but that's really not gonna help us towards getting anywhere near our 40% canopy below. On the site so um, that's why that one in particular singled out has been really obvious but there are some others out there that probably not many as katie said but in that same category and probably the other ones probably aren't ones that you'd pick because they're cheap and you know bulk discounts the other problem you see with varieties, if anybody's seen them planted like where they are planted and a new development has a new screen or hedge it seems like lately about half of them are dead
1: yeah. Thank you, Jeremy.
4: Yeah. It's also instant hedge. I mean, so as much as they're rat trees, they people still like to put them in because it's an instant an instant Privacy wall. barrier.
1: Yeah. 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 And they could certainly still plant them if they wanted to. It's fish. not countable. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm.
4: Countable. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Any other questions before Jeremy takes over here or comments?
3: I just, on that topic, Katie, I just wanted to comment, like you mentioned Hinoki cypress as an example. And to me, you know, uh, to get a, a sizable Hanoki Cypress that's going to uh, give you any season, uh, sizable tree credits, it's a lot of money. And they I, I happen to like them myself. I've got a couple of them on my property. One of them's about 25 feet tall. I planted it 30 years ago and it's a beautiful tree. and and you know those slow growing some of those slow growing conifers i think are some of the nicest and most they're most expensive they're not i totally get the the arborophyte you know those are crap and i completely agree with that but i just when you said slow growing conifers some of the the more attractive ones to me are slow growing and they're expensive so why would you rule them out
1: yeah and i think that's a really good point yeah i don't necessarily think kenoki is probably the best example it okay. was the first one at the top of my head there, but <laughs> um, okay. yeah, l- unlikely to be included on that list. Maybe the dwarf spruce, though, I would count on that list. <laughs> um, okay, great. Well, Jeremy, if you want to take it from here. Um...
8: Okay, thanks, Katie. Yeah. Um, John or Rick, feel free to add color commentary here as I go, but um, what I want to do at this point in the presentation is summarize um, because it's been a couple of years now, though, the community council's recommendations um, and where we see the current draft of the code either aligning or potentially not aligning with what you recommended at the time. Okay, so um, at the beginning of their the tree code amendment process, the community council did establish these guiding principles that helped you inform kind of your review along the way and ultimately your recommendations. So I won't read through these, but um, this is what was established as kind of your benchmark. Uh, as you did your review of the draft code. Um, in your recommendation, which I included in the packet, um, there were two key issues that you identified as the, in the recommendation that these may be areas we, where we might um, choose to exercise our disapproval authority if um, the recommendation that the decisions um, don't fall out this way. So, one of them was um, at the time being debated was an outright prohibition on removal of landmark trees. Um, So, the current draft of the code is, as um, Katie noted, is allowing one per year, potentially banking forward. So, you have multiple multi year removals um, with mitigation, as she noted. Um, The one thing that has changed along the way based on council direction though, to note is that the size of landmark trees has been reduced from 30 inches to 26 inches. Yeah, John.
4: Yeah, just a quick, Katie mentioned you might address the uh, desire to remove a landmark tree versus its nuisance and or damage at this point. That's one thing that's not being discussed now, you know, is it carte blanche you can do this or is it only if it's nuisance it's part, if
8: it's just a standalone so to use a simple example like yours so say you've got six trees on your lot and you're allowed to remove two and one of them's a landmark tree and one of them's not um, you can do that the only difference with the landmark tree is that it triggers the mitigation requirements that the other tree so say the eight inch tree and a, and a 30 inch tree the, the 30 inch tree is going to trigger the mitigation requirements Um, secondly, the committee council recommended that there be a cap on the maximum number of tree credits that the city can require developer to retain for tier two trees. And these are the trees and setbacks that Katie noted. But um, well, we haven't talked to planning commission or the city council about this section of the code specifically yet. Um, staff and the planning commission did not agree with that cap, or we, we talked about as a quota at the time. Um, the draft does include explicit guarantees about. Uh, development right so that you that um utilization of the tree code wouldn't deprive you of fl- um, area ratio density lock coverage other things that are guaranteed in the code but um, a specific cap on the number of trees required for retention is not in the draft at this point Any questions on that before i move on
5: Um, so in addition, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Red.
3: Jeremy, my only comment was um, on that last slide: the the guarantee, um, explicit guarantee of density, lot coverage, and and FAR ratios. But there's there's nothing that guarantees that those um, guarantees are not without. Um, a there's no limit on the, the cost to the to the property owner um in terms of how that how much more their cost for utilities and and uh, the, the development costs may be impacted by those factors that's all i you know that's, uh, you know what i'm saying
8: yeah no that's right i mean i think that's the the challenge we've had from the beginning yeah. of this code is trying to articulate that balance just right. So yeah. it is there's nothing that, um, you know, the code doesn't really talk about cost, but it talks about strategies. You might, you know, combination of requirements and incentives to help the developer save those trees, but it hasn't gotten to the point where it's like, okay, you've got you save four, you don't have to save the fifth. It's still like, if you can save the five, you know, just the simple scenarios, they're all in required yards, you're not building anywhere near them, um, that those trees would be subject to retention.
3: And that's where we, That's that and the certainty, you know, idea, you know, is where we were leaning towards, let's just put a number on it. And that, as long as you meet that number, then, you know, that was why we were leaning that way just to make it more objective and predictable. Yeah,
5: that's
3: right. Okay, no said. <laughs> John, do you have a question on this one?
4: Well, I, uh, I'd make this very fast. I just wanted to pile on, it's not not just cost, it's also desire based on topography and shape of a property. If you have a very wide shallow property and trees take half the width you and you physically can build on half of the lot's width and get all the required coverage, floor area ratio, et cetera, you might want to build the width of the lot so you can take advantage of the view of the sun of the slope. Maybe get a two-story if if you've got property slope and you can only build on half of it. Because the property slopes down, you might be forced to build a a one-story house with a basement because of the height limit instead of a two-story house. there's so many other factors involved and I just it's not it's not static that's all that's just a comment thank you
8: thank you um so beyond those two those are kind of the the two hot you know top of mind issues for the community council there were a number number of other recommendations included there one was that um, the community council, particularly former community council member Neil Black, spent a ton of time just helping staff work through and and, and get the wording and the tense and the um, semantics right. And so the community council recommended that that as we revise that code in conjunction with Neil, that we use that as our base. And that has continued to be the base code that we're working off of. Um, the council, community council, also requested some clarification of how we were measuring multi-trunk trees at the time, and that has been incorporated in, into the draft code, um, in staff and planning commission recommendations. We spent a lot of time talking about the distinction between a hedge and a grove, and a grove and a hedge, which is which, and so. Um, you had a specific recommendation in your code based on division that are um, the definitions at the time we think we've got it addressed it's not exactly what was re- recommended by the community council but planning commission and city council i've also continued to spend a lot of time trying to make sure we've got those definitions right so
4: we think we've got it um but uh, john uh, yeah thank you so this is regarding the multi- uh, trunk. I looked through the revised code. And to my understanding, if you had an extremely large vine maple, you could actually hit a heritage tree designation.
1: Um, I can chime in here, Jeremy, if that's helpful. So um I'm sure this could also apply to other examples of tree species, but vine maple is not on uh, the tree list for the city of Kirkland. It's it's typically not revered as actually a tree in most municipalities. So it is classified as a shrub. Um, and so that would not be applicable. If you had another tree species that tends to have that multi-trunk structure, um, you would have to have... Uh, a lot of trunks and all of which have to be over three inches to even be included in the measurement in order to reach that 26 inch threshold. I think it's, it's pretty rare that we would run into that. Um, I can't even think of any species where that might be the case. Um, Most, most of the ones I can think of are considered shrubs and wouldn't be considered regulated trees in the city. If you have another example, I can kind of address that. Yes,
4: I actually, I, I have a volunteer cherry tree that uh would meet this classification on my property as well now they're probably 12 inch stem there's four of them coming out of one trunk
1: yeah so that would be easily you
4: know
1: yeah and that that would certainly be considered a multi-trunk tree and it would use that quadratic formula to calculate the average diameter um however you know cherry trees for instance they do have a lot of disease issues it for it to be a regulated tree that would be required for retention standards, it would have to be viable as well. So that plays a role into that. Oftentimes that multi-trunk structure, especially if it splits off low at the base, isn't a very good long-term structure um, for that tree to kind of fill in and, and be a viable long-term tree on a property. So that may not be one that the city would even you know, classify as high retention value. Okay, thank you. Yeah, absolutely.
8: Okay, um, so we talked a little bit already about homeowner removals, um, and the Community Council recommendation to not prohibit them as was under under discussion at one point in the uh, public hearing process. Um, the Community Council also didn't like the idea of requiring a property owner to submit a notification to the city when the landmark when a landmark tree was removed. So as noted earlier, the city council direction right now would allow removal of a landmark tree. However, council um, at their most recent meetings, um, A would like, uh, has given instruction that a permit should re- be required for removal of a landmark tree. And as Katie noted, that helps us with the mitigation standard, um, assign staff resources to, to review it, approve it, and then track that the replanting is occurring based on the mitigation standard. I'll also add that most recent direction from city council is, is to potentially require tree removal notification. So that's a free, it's not a permit, but to require notification for removal of any regulated tree in the curtain. I should know in case you haven't figured it out yet, the blue text is highlighting um, what are the, are the distinctions from Horton's recommendations. A Betsy question?
7: Well, I'm stepping into too soon here. I just wanted to make sure that we maybe talked about that code enforcement issue that Betsy Lewis had mentioned earlier. So, but I could wait till after this this discussion.
5: Um,
8: Yeah, why don't you, I don't think I'm gonna have a slide that tackles it, but um, let's kind of take that in the general stuff at the end. Um, Preemptive tree removals, I think Katie covered that pretty well um, with the wait periods. Um, with the exception for hard hardships, we had we don't we haven't drafted that hardship language. So just the discussion tonight and for the review of council is going to be key to dialing that in and getting it right. I, what I heard council talk a lot about at the last meeting on this was it was the intent and knowledge of it and how you write that into code is yet to be determined. We'll probably be spending some time with city attorney on that. But I think the concept is that there's an affidavit that um, the property owner would sign
5: that would. Constitute that hardship um, in trees
8: and development. Again, as Katie know, we we haven't gotten explicit um, council direct city council direction on the draft code here, but uh, Houghton had recommended that. Let's see. At the time, it, it was a. It, a tree plan so a tree plan review would be required if you were submitting for example an additional remodel to your home where you're adding more than 50 percent of the floor area so the community council had recommended well if you're just adding a second story on a house and that doesn't have any impact on the tr- on the critical root zone or on trees on the site that doesn't make sense that that's the trigger So we did, uh, Planning Commission uh, agreed with that. And so the current draft has that more as a footprint as recommended by the city council rather than just um, square footage. Um, The committee council had recommended clarification of language on the maximum building footprint. At the time we were talking about this 40 by 40 maximum pad with a 20 by 20 kind of satellite moving around it. Um, The draft code no longer contains that maximum footprint recommendation. I think to John's point about the skinny lot, as we tried to apply it to development scenarios, it's really not every lot is a perfectly square rectangular um, shape. And so we just dropped that kind of footprint, maximum footprint concept from the
5: draft code at this point. Let's see.
8: We talked about the uh, quota or the cap on tree retention, I believe, and so that's um, not in the current recommendation, as noted previously. Um, The Community Council had requested some clarification so for lots uh, where we put provisions in the draft code that would allow developers to cluster their lots Um, so if if that results in superior tree retention, you can cluster your lots. Um, and wanted to make sure that, that, that a developer wasn't being penalized now that you have smaller lots, that you're not being further restricted on your lot coverage or your floor area ratio. So that clarification has been added to the draft code that um, if you choose to cluster or required to cluster, you're not, you can still reach your full development potential in terms of density, floor area ratio, lot coverage, et cetera. Um, Some some clarifications on tree and soil protection that have been incorporated into the draft. Yeah, John.
4: I'm sorry, it took me a while to hit my hand, Jeremy, on clustering. Uh Yeah. um, Is there a a minimum amount that you can cluster your lots, or is it really looked at through subjectivity of how to protect a tree? So if you're an 8500 zone, uh, and you, you have exactly uh, 17,000 feet, so you have two 8,500 square foot lots. Uh, to save a tree, could you make one 8,400 and the other 8,600? I mean, that minimal of a change? Sure. Uh, is there a minimum, a maximum in terms of relation, or, or is it all just kind of uh, present something and we'll look at it? So thank you.
8: Um, I think the, the way it's drafted. Um, allows maximum flexibility. So I don't think there's a, I think that on the extreme, I think I don't think there's a minimum lot size anymore, right? So if you took that example and say you, you do two, 3,000 square foot lots, two, 4,000 square foot lots, I think the code still gives you the flexibility to do that um, because at the end of the day, you still end up with the same amount of house in that two lot short plat as you would if you did not cluster. Any other questions on that? Good question, John.
7: That could give you a nice grove if you've got a really heavily wooded property, you could just, right? That would, you could keep that heavily wooded area and just put the houses closer together. And
8: that's the goal. Um, And there are some examples around Kirkland. It happens more with wetlands and streams where, you know, as a, as a way to work around that constraint on the property that you can use that kind of flexibility. So this is just trying to open up that same consideration that if you have, and there's some examples in the city where a developer has set aside a tract or some common ownership, often it's with larger flats where all the trees are over in the corner of the lots. You don't have, just because of there's minimum lot size requirement, you don't have to carve up that patch of trees just to meet your minimum loss size so now you've got the latitude to work around it I would think that factors.
7: would be more of a that would be a goal I would think because we've all walked by those groves of trees and noticed the temperature drop you know because once you get a critical mass of trees you get a lot more climate change um you know mitigation there you know than than just a tree here and a tree there and mm-hmm. so yeah, we did
8: borrow. Um, there are clustering provisions on the Houghton Slope that um, have previously been approved, so it's kind of following that same template. In that case, it was for preservation of steep slopes, which often has the benefit of saving trees, um, but this is more focused on trees. I
4: think
7: awesome.
8: I'm not sure if John and Rick had their hand
3: up first, so you guys decide.
8: Rick,
4: go, ahead, John. That's right. Oh, uh, uh, tree and soil protection requirements. Um, is there something in the code when we need to amend a soil in yards? When we, d- does the amended soil stop exactly at the tree fencing? Uh, is it, how, how, is that something to consider if you haven't, if it's not in the code, it just, I, I it was just thought, thanks. So that's
8: about the surface water requirements for amended soils. Is that what you're getting at? I'm not yeah, sure. We need that. to go
4: down 12 inches
8: yeah i would i'm not sure exactly but i would think that would be covered by the fence it would be out the area outside of that but to be honest i don't know i mean i have not seen cases where public works is requiring somebody to till up tree roots so right Katie. Okay. i don't know if you have any other insights on that mm,
1: i think my only comment would just be that yeah we wouldn't require if soils did need to be amended Certainly, the area within that tree protection fenced area would want to be as you know minimally disturbed as possible. So that would be you know, if anything, you're putting a little couple inches of topsoil with a few inches of wood chip mulch, um, but there shouldn't really be any tilling or um, removal of soil to kind of create a different sub base within those areas.
5: Thanks, John Rick. This is a big
3: picture general question um, that I've been wanting to apply. And that is how do these regs apply to and and facilitate the greater density that um, is necessary for the missing middle type housing that we're promoting?
8: It's kind of... Yeah, no, it's the same, it's the same concept that you're still you're still entitled to your densities and everything. You're still entitled to your area ratio, and your lot coverage, whatever that is. And even it's you know part of the missing middle um regulations is that falls within the same envelope that a normal construction of a home would, right? So you're still you're not getting bonuses necessarily for lot coverage to do that. So you're still working within the constraints of having trees on the lot and and trying to um work around trees that are identified as regulated trees or based on retention value. Um, and ADUs is, is similar. Um, we've had a similar question from the council. Like if you have, say you have an existing house and you want to build a detached ADU, that's gonna, we're gonna look at that under the tree code if you have options of locating a detached ADU in one part of the lot versus the other and you've got some flexibility to move it around, that's explored. But if you have one place and one place only to put the detached state and there's, a, there's a, a tree there, then the, the tree coat's gonna allow you to remove that tree as part of your development, right?
3: Okay, it just goes back to my previous concern about the costs and mm-hmm. the, if, if costs aren't factored in, you know, and if there's an exorbitant increase in cost to to try to preserve, um, you know, all the trees you can, you know, rather than have some predetermined, you know, credit limit or something, which is what we were trying to get to, then the, the, those costs certainly don't help the affordable housing. You know, is trying trying to hit that missing middle. That's that, it's just a big picture thought that I had. So, enough of that. I just wanted to make that point.
8: Okay, I think I'm wrapping it up here. Um, Some clarifications that were asked for on tree planting requirements that were incorporated in the Planning Commission draft. Um, Interestingly, the uh, improving parking lot landscape standards, I think what the community council felt at the time is they're so so rigid that maybe you're not, like you're designing parking lots that are creating great parking stalls, but maybe you're sacrificing trees um, just in the interest of meeting the city standards for parking lots. And the city council had that same thought. And so they've asked us, uh, Katie and I, to go back and look at what additional flexibility can we create in there? So for example, right now, the code encourages you, there's a certain amount of landscaping required per every eight parking stalls. But in general, it it suggests that you put those landscape islands in a parking lot at a distance of every eight stalls. So the thinking now, um, direction we've gotten from councils Can you just do away with that entirely, and just come up with a code that allows maximum flexibility around tree retention and stormwater performance, and and rather than the aesthetics of breaking up the pavement with trees at certain intervals, Um, so we're we're, we don't have that yet, but that's something we're going to be working on for the February fifteenth meeting. Is that right, Katie? Um, and then lastly was um, just some clarification about inspection language for parking lots and so that that change has been made. I have to add, we don't do a lot of parking lots anymore, it seems like most redevelopment in Kirkland's commercial mixed use zones are, are working with structured parking so we don't get a ton of parking lots anymore, but certainly for things like if we have car dealerships or um you know, single story banks or Starbucks or something, that's probably where we're looking at these, these codes applying. Um, so this is my last slide, I think, right, Katie? So um, so February 1st, we go back to city council with review of part three, that's largely the trees in development. And then on the 15th, we're gonna take all of the guidance we've gotten from the, from the council over the over the previous three chapters of the code um, try to draft a code that responds to that guidance and then if they approve that then we'd go back on March 1st for potential adoption and then of course once they um, adopt the code by ordinance within 60 days it will come back to the community council um, to exercise your um, disapproval jurisdiction. And then we are thinking about a lagged um, Implementation timeframe. So the effective date of the code, I think we wanna push that out. So staff has time to get all of our forms and paperwork uh, worked out and the development community has time to work around that in terms of pipeline projects they might have in the hopper. So we don't know exactly what that um, implementation date would be, but that's something that we'll be thinking about. John.
4: Uh, Yeah. Thanks for wrapping up. I've got just some general questions, uh, if I could sort of rifle through them. I know one of the largest things that we chatted about as a council early on was predictability in the code. And I think one of the things that an awful lot of what you and Katie have talked about tonight has, I think, greatly helped it. Um, But I still see that if we don't actually have a bogey, it's going to be very difficult to understand are we gonna be forced to save that tree and adjust something in a project to uh, make it work to save a tree. So I think there's still some probability for unpredictability. Um, we didn't chat or hear anything tonight about uh, grove trees or um, landmark trees putting being put in a, an easement or attract. That was in discussion later and on the timeline for that, whether it was for a period of time or in perpetuity. So that was not discussed. And I'm hitting some, some very big high bullet points of things I think that were important to us in our discussion that we will now not have an op- opportunity to discuss again until this comes back to us for final review and I, I think that's kind of a shame because we won't really have a chance to look at the the whole picture to make any comments before it comes back to us for final review so i'm just trying to get everything i can think of right now in um, I, i'm concerned about that question because of the land taking issue if you you know make it a track or put something in perpetuity the possibility of it being a a taking. I did mention never reducing the zoning, uh, you know, outright zoning rights, but we don't have all square or rectangular properties that are perfectly flat. So there's always going to be a condition. And the ways that we look at um, the variability of property, I think uh, without the predictability could be a um, difficult, for somebody up front to understand when they present something so I would like to maybe say that in the tree code where those existing conditions occur um, that we could have a meaningful and a resolute like tree pre-application meeting on a site plan um, one of the difficulties with the pre-application meeting process is oftentimes the answer is, well, you have to meet the current code when you come back in for permit. And, and that, that's really not a predictable enough answer, especially when you would be required to redesign something completely because of a tree. Um, so possibly something like that. We, if, we, if we don't get at least to predictability and numbers game in the very beginning, get to a way that somebody could get to an answer at the very beginning of a project that they could rely on, like a pre-application meeting and then bingo, there's your answer. And we're not gonna, you know. um... Okay, next thing, uh, drip lines and root zones. There was never really a discussion of how we deal with or intrude upon drip lines and root zones. And this is particular on the slide where we had the grove of trees on the top of the page portion that, that scalloped into the setback. Um, I saw the size of the trunk in relation to the size of the drip line in designation. And I'm thinking they all must be um, true uh, acers, Japanese maples that grow straight up in the air. Um, because those drip lines really are not representative of how big the trunks are drawn and so what is the mechanism of getting into the drip lines dealing with the root zones and when deb powers was really looking all of this her answer was you know always tunneling and for single family residential cottage uh, adus etc when you when you talk about tunneling for anything other than a water line a too much water line you can Tunnel and mole in a two inch soft line relatively easy. But if you're talking a four inch sewer line or a storm line, massively expensive and almost impossible to do to negotiate around existing properties. So the root line, the, the, the root zones, and the drip lines, I don't think have been addressed. Um, the other thing is limbing. Um, we really uh, didn't get into limbing. Um, if people like trees and want to try and keep trees, they want to possibly look through into them and around them and beyond them. And so limbing up trees are certainly a way to do that, a very viable way in preserving the health of a tree. Uh, that needs to be discussed. So when somebody has a grove on their property and they want to look past it, they won't get into a situation of violation by uh, limbing a tree. So that's something that should be addressed. Um, The 40% canopy goals that we've talked about, I've been pretty vocal on uh, the canopy goals. We really don't understand where they are in terms of single family in our residential neighborhoods, in our commercial neighborhoods, on public lands such as parks, and on public lands such as right-of-ways, right-of-way trees, street trees. Um, And so we are categorically seeming to impose the 40% canopy goal of all of Kirkland, um, unilaterally, Lot by lot by lot, not understanding that places like Totem Lake have a much lower canopy than Holmes Point, just by the nature of the kind of projects and that sort of thing. And so I do think the 40 percent canopy goal I have. Please don't misunderstand. There's not an issue with that at all. But I think some more data points are probably uh, would be worthwhile if some of those have been produced, Jeremy, and I've missed them. Please draw that to my attention. Um. The Holmes Point overlay uh, was something that uh, was done, it was my understanding when the new tree code was put in place, it would uh, incorporate the uh, issues of the Holmes Point overlay and the Holmes Point overlay would go away. It's sounding like we're having a tree code and an additional regulation for one neighborhood or kind of a it overlaps a little bit but in the Holmes Point area and I'd like you to clarify it tonight if you could is it the city's intent to keep the Holmes Point overlay in addition with the tree code or as was originally intended the Holmes Point overlay uh, uh, elements be brought into the new tree code And then I'll let you answer that if you could answer that for me. And then the last point that I have is, have you all at the city taken any permits that were submitted, let's say two or three years ago, and applied with the exact same home design, the new standards that you're striving for to see if the result or the yield would in fact be different? And, and um, I'm thinking that probably is maybe difficult because the predictability in terms of, you know, the bogey or a specific number, I, I don't know, I haven't done that myself. Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm curious, actually, you know, if it would yield a different number than we have yielded three years ago from now. So, so that's it. The only question, everything was sort of points to be made with the exception of the Holmes Point overlay Jeremy if you know is that going to remain intact or or be sunset? Um,
8: boy there's a bunch of questions you asked John we could um, go through those I don't know if Rick if you want us to kind of take some of those point by point where we can't answer them. Rick you're muted.
3: Um, I could Jeremy if you well, if you could give it a a, a high level, I know you could get into a lot of detail on this. If you could give it a high level on on John's major uh, issues, okay. it okay. might be worth okay discussion. Only because Jeremy, I would never ask it. Other than the council has put us in a really awkward position.
8: No, I get it. I think I can fly through some answers, and yeah, Katie can you. do color commentary. So um, predictability. That's. I mean, that's what this is all about, right? So I I won't spend a lot of time getting into whether. Um, this code is um, providing more predictability than the existing code. we spent a lot of time to try to achieve that. Um, whether or not trees are protected in easements or tracks, like for, for groves, um, we've already implemented a grove covenant rather than the easements and tracks we were using before. So I think we've addressed um, that concern. I don't, I'm don't not aware of any time other than maybe clustering where you put trees in an easement or tract. Um
1: I can chime in about the um, really quick about landmark trees, those would be subject to a five year tree maintenance agreement similar to with um, other trees required to be retained through a development permit,
8: which is more like a covenant agreement john rather than a, an easement or some sort of designation on the geography of the property. Um, early pre subs I think that's part of why would the Council and staff. Um, and others have been keen on getting rid of the IDP or having an IDP process where we're getting that information, particularly for short plots and subdivisions, as early in the process as we can so we can start to look at that. Um, the drip line, um, I think we've got a lot more clarity in the code about um, tree retention standards. Katie, do you have a quick overview of how we determine yeah. what the critical root zone and inner critical root zone are?
1: Yeah, so the critical root zone would be determined by um, similar to the existing code where it's up to the qualified professional arborist to provide kind of their metric for determining that, Um, or the default would be one foot for every one inch, of one radial foot for every one inch of trunk diameter. Um, So that would be the kind of baseline starting point for tree protection zone. And then it would be as we go through the review process, working with the arborist to potentially reduce that. I mean, it's, it's just really just very site dependent, depending on whether or not you already have existing structures, foundations, um, roadways, you know, that's the, the thing with trees is it is very unique to each tree in each situation. So it is um, an area where it's very hard to just say this is the metric and that's it. Um, so it, it's similar to the existing code, but... Um, Certainly, we provided a lot more tools in the toolkit for arborists to be able for applicants to be able to figure out, you know, what allowable encroachment they can put um, or they can have on on a site with a tree. So
4: so just a quick follow up on that, assuming the one foot per inch, your landmark tree at 26 inches has a 26 foot radius drip line, most 8,500 square foot lots are anywhere from Um, 75 to 90 feet wide that's kind of a just spitball sort of perspective so your diagram that you showed the drip line is halfway into a normal lot and the grove would be halfway into the other and so you remember early on in their presentation when you had that slide up I asked some questions that maybe you'd get to later so um I just I just want to understand that because a heritage tree has a very large drip line, and with a grove on the other side, with a drip line, basically you've bifurcated the lot with almost a a line. So I don't know many houses that are five feet wide.
1: Well, and that is so specifically, and we didn't really go over these in depth tonight because they haven't been, the city council hasn't seen them yet. But we do have specific site plan alterations and variations, which I believe are in your council packet. So you know, really the expectation is if you have a tree that's in your required, let's say your side yard that has a 25 foot radial drip line, the expectation is not that the city is requiring you to retain it up to that 25 foot drip line and make it so that you can't build on the site. Your, the expectation is that you go through that list of available alterations and variations. And if the tree still can't be retained after that, then the city would authorize removal so it's, it's it. really you know it's, it's almost like this checklist that the developers expected to go through um if they run into scenarios where those types of trees exist
8: okay yeah um okay boring and tunneling the codes we did get pretty explicit in the code about the size of the utilities that you would consider for boring and tunneling so things like sewer you know big sewer pipe that's not one of the considerations in the draft code um Limming uh, Katie can come back to that in a minute. Let me finish some of the other ones. The canopy uh, goals. Yeah, every lot in Kirkland is not expected to have 40% canopy, as you said. The uh, village at Totem Lake doesn't have 40% canopy. You know, parts of Finn Hill are obviously contributing, where there's a lot of open space. A lot of parks are contributing to more heavily so this spotty. Um, but there is the canopy assessment, and we're going to be getting a new one in the next year or so. The canopy assessment does that does break that down geographically, by neighborhood, by what type of property is, by what the zone is, whether or not it's a street, it's a park. So, so all that data is in the canopy report. Uh, HPO, I don't think there's been a, there's not an assumption that the HPO will go away. So for those of you who are new that Holmes Point overlay applies up in the um, Fin Hill neighborhood to the really steep slopes where it goes down towards Lake Washington. That's something we inherited from King County with the annexation in 2011. What council had talked about last time they looked at a draft, excuse me, of the Holmes Point overlay for revisions was they put it on pause and they said, well, until we finish chapter 85, which is the geohazard regulations and chapter 95, which is the tree code, we don't know what the remainder, uh, what's the role, ongoing role of the homeless plan overlay. So finish those projects first, and then we'll come back and talk about whether or not we need the homeless plan overlay or what revisions are necessary. And so we have yet to finish the tree code. Once we do, we'll check back in with council on that. Um, we did some testing um, early on this John to your question about what's it yield in terms of that, um, if you start applying these codes to development sites. And we did go through some, a lot of that um, back with the, when we were working with the Finno Neighborhood Alliance and the master builders to start to apply the rules at the time when we're looking at what those look like on a site and how, how big of a difference does it make. And I think one of the key takeaways, similar to what you're mentioning is for landmark trees. These are big trees with big um, critical root zones. So we weren't finding dramatic on on just a standard lot like you. That has to be kind of a Goldilocks location for that landmark tree to be able to successfully retain it on a little lot. It's going to be really problematic. It would remain as it is right now problematic to try to save that tree. But certainly when we get to short plat subdivision bigger lots, etc., then you know, potentially more latitude to save those landmark trees. So that's everything I had, if I missed anything, let me know. And maybe Katie, you can take a quick um, jab at the at the limbing for views yeah. and sailing, et cetera.
1: Yeah, can you hear me okay? I switched to my headset. There's yep. a- activity in my home. <laughs> um, so uh, for the pruning, um, as with the existing code, pruning of trees is allowed unless the tree is in a critical area or in a protected grove covenant. Um, So property owners don't need a permit to prune a tree. Um, The definition of tree removal was revised to align with the um, code enforcement code chapter that was revised I think in February of last year that states that tree removal is considered more than 25 percent canopy removal. So pruning would need to be fall under that threshold um, to where you know the pruning is not done in such a manner that it's going to damage the longevity of that tree. Um, Certainly you know a lot of industry standards do allow pruning up to 25-30 percent if it's done properly. So that's really you know what the city would be looking for, in terms of if they received a complaint about pruning, you know, it, it certainly couldn't be done in a way that is going to either make that tree a hazard, um, obviously, topping. Um, but there are, like John mentioned, a lot of different pruning techniques that can be used to help add windows or view corridors through trees if that is a desire. Um, if it is a protected grove covenant, I think John, you mentioned that you would be required to submit. Um, actually to receive written prior approval from the city to prune those trees. So that would involve emailing the city your proposed plan and then having a planning official say, yep, that's okay, Um, you can do that. So that is uh, kind of a brief overview of that there. If you look at the definition section in the council packet that you received, there's more information on that. Also section 95, I think 21 it is addresses, Tree pruning on private properties. It's one of those first sections in there.
4: And then just a follow up, Katie, if you could. Uh, early on, we talked about allowing ADUs in rear yards, and there was a discussion with council, I think, at one of our times when we were together uh, about relaxing tree standards to allow for ADUs. And has that discussion gone anywhere? Jeremy, you probably might've been part of that.
8: Um, I think there was a concern as you expressed earlier that, that tree protection might preclude the ability to build ADUs. But I think the response is as I articulated earlier, it's like it's, it's, the ADU permit is like any other development permit where you look, are there incentives that would help you save the tree or is there ability to work around it? And at the end of the day, if the tree can't be saved, and you can't build it. It's not gonna preclude you from building an ADU. But there's not a, there has been, you know, intermittent discussion about ADUs and affordable housing, like would you trade, you know, affordable housing for tree removal, but I, I don't think that has really gotten purchased as a, as a valid um, consequence okay. of the tree uh, Thank you. All right, thanks John. And Rick, patiently waiting with your hand up.
3: Two questions, one uh, on the pruning. I'm curious about a situation where you got a large tree that is getting really large and it's encroaching on the adjacent property owners, um, airspace and they they want to Retain their son, their space for whatever their garden, whatever is there a restriction on that in pruning back trees that are adjacent on uh, that are they are coming into your space?
1: So oh, that really does. Uh, oh, oh, I gotta maybe mute there, Rick. I've got a feedback happening. There we go. Um, so that really does uh, is more of a, a civil matter and you know, per a lot of Washington case laws that have been, you know, have come out over the last decade or so, that really sets the standard for, you know, allowable pruning when you have a property line tree. So it can very much vary. I believe where that kind of left off with the most recent case law is that you can prune up to the property line as long as you do not cause the tree to die or decline. You know, for instance, if you cut off one really big trunk, if it's a double trunk tree, you know that would be a situation where the outcome may result in the tree of decline. So I, that is not addressed in the code because that really is um, a, a civil issue between property owners, um, and that's governed by Washington case laws. So, yeah.
3: okay, just just want to understand if there was some city. So it's it's civil, not not a city regulation issue. And then okay. once, yes. yeah, and then one more question related to the the proposed um, development restrictions for a property that's removed a tree in the last year if it's you know regulated has that been proven elsewhere are we are we um looking at how this has successfully been implemented in any other communities um over over some time and i'm bringing it up because I'm concerned and I have said this from the beginning when we first enacted the tree code way back that I'm concerned about unintended consequences that uh, I could see this kind of restriction uh, resulting in people preemptively removing trees that they might not otherwise be inclined to remove because there's the potential for it to become an issue for them. Uh, even though they did, they would otherwise keep the tree. But if they, if it's potentially going to be a problem down the line, uh, if they, if they think that they may be thinking of selling within the next few years, then maybe they, maybe they just start taking trees out just for no reason, because they're going to be so restricted.
1: That's a really. Interesting comment and and question. I think that, um, you know, part of the implementation of the new tree code is going to involve a lot of public outreach and education just to inform property owners of, you know, the intent behind that regulation and um, hopefully not have a lot of preemptive tree removals occurring because of that fear of that regulation. So that will be involved, um, and then to address other municipalities having similar regulations, um, I have not seen that specific regulation in other municipalities. Uh, I know that we did a, a lot of dev, did a lot of deep diving into other municipal codes, um, but I will say that a lot of municipalities completely prohibit the removal of trees over a certain size threshold, without them being a hazard or a nuisance or they have, you know, reduced or lower tree removal allowances per year. So um, there are stricter regulations in that sense in other municipalities. So by us
5: yeah. <laughs> Appreciate it.
2: Larry? Uh, yeah, you mentioned a couple of times Fen Hill Neighborhood Association Master Builders I've watched the November council meeting, the January 4th council meeting and no comments from those organizations, but I assume that they may have been submitting letters or other kind of commentary on this. And I'd like to kind of get an idea of where they're standing with these changes because they were quite different on different ends of the spectrum uh, when we last talked a couple of years ago. We do you
8: have... Um to my knowledge, we don't have a response from a recent response from master builders. We do have a couple, I think the past two, so the two touches that council's had with tree code, um, I believe we received a letter from the Finnhill Neighborhood Alliance in both cases, uh, two or three, Katie, if you recall, and we can certainly share that if you're interested.
1: Yeah, I believe it was two letters from Finhill Neighborhood Alliance. And then we did have a, um, just not the master builders, but it was Merritt Holmes, reach out with some comments, but it was kind of regurgitated from a couple of years ago. It, it wasn't any new comments necessarily, um, just like a general, uh, more general kind of high level comments. I'd have to re-review that and double double check that if you happen to remember, Jeremy, what, what that you was.
4: you those to us? What was the question, John? Sorry. Could we get those forwarded to us, please? Yeah, you bet. Thanks.
1: Nothing from master builders though that we've received since we've resumed the council review in November.
2: Thank you. Any
8: other questions?
3: So where do we go from here?
8: Well,
2: one second, Rick. (laughs) Uh, betsy brought up earlier uh, the code enforcement issues that oh, right, the right. person put out and we haven't addressed that here yeah
8: so. yeah i think um so the council did amend as i mentioned earlier the code enforcement provisions did you say february katie of yeah i think it was february year, um, with um, significant additional penalties for uh, where we find violations of the code um, Betsy was correct. We do have two code enforcement officers who usually work the you know five days a week. Um, the council has authorized a third code enforcement officer as part of um, the 22-23 budget. So we are currently in the process of hiring a third code enforcement officer. I'm not sure what the hours or the shifts look like on that. We do encourage folks and the uh, police department does respond to weekend complaints on construction and development activity to to check it out and see whether or not it's authorized. So if things are happening on the weekend where you can't reach code enforcement officer, the police department does respond to those. And then we'll follow up with any um, additional action um, once we've got a code enforcement officer back in the office to go check it out. Um, I feel like I'm missing something in that question betsy did is there something else there
7: um, you're talking about this betsy or that betsy Be, this
5: betsy betsy king <laughs> 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 um
7: well, she had the question on newly planted trees not being maintained, you guys have addressed that, Um, the code enforcement. She also um, had said the fines are not high enough on developers for taking down uh, trees that they're not supposed to, so.
8: We we have certainly seen a decline in illegal tree removals on development sites once the fees, once the penalty went up. So I think that's been effective. It doesn't mean that it's not happening, but the consequences are much greater right um, on the tree removals, so every um, every building permitting orphanfin for their when they plant new trees replacement trees are, are um, on site is uh, those trees are subject to a five year maintenance agreement. We go out and inspect those at the time of final inspection to make sure they all got planted but as a practical matter, we don't have anywhere. I mean, It would take an extraordinary number of resources to go out and check on every single family lot just as you know, one class of permit to, to make sure those five trees have survived. Right. So I think it's true that we're not doing a, we don't do a bang up job of enforcing that or making sure that those trees didn't die. Um, that just would require more resources than we have. Um, we have, council did, um, one of the other concerns has been about fence creep, um, as we've been working on this code, right? Like the, the, the fence went up and then the developers start shifting it, um, based on their needs during the construction process. Um, we do have, um, council did authorize another position of public works. So we, we do inspections, like when we have building inspectors out or public works inspectors out on grading permits, um, they're catching it at the intervals when they're um, doing their other inspections, but council did add, um, somebody um, who has, uh, I believe it's 20% of their uh, position is to do random spot check inspections on tree fencing. That's so
0: awesome. that
8: individual is out there and if they find violations, they'll have to deal with it in the field refer report to our code enforcement staff.
7: And the other um, audience request from Didra was about uh, planning official can to planning official shall. Now I'm sure there's probably a reason why you don't have the shell there? Do you want to address that? I mean, are there just cer- certain times when you can't force that or what, or what?
5: Yeah, Katie, do you want to
8: talk about it in terms of the draft code? I wasn't, I, um, to be honest, I wasn't sure if that was, if Deidre was referencing the current code or the code that's um, in process, so.
1: Yeah, I was a little unclear on that as well. Um, I, I assumed it was the existing code um, because okay. she maybe hasn't seen the proposed draft code. Um, so, in terms of the existing code and you know tree retention standards, um, I'd have to look. We we did just kind of recently receive those comments. So I'd have to look back through, and we're happy to you know get back to well. I uh, think Betsy she- individually or Deirdre on that.
7: Right. I think that um, probably she's just asking that um, planning officials maybe have a little bit more um, authority to, to require things instead of, well, maybe they can do this or maybe they can do that. It's just like they shall require this or that, you know, just like putting a little bit more teeth into it. So I guess that's just something to look out for in the language as you're drafting the new ones to maybe... Give give the city a little bit more authority on some of that.
1: Yeah, thank you. And I do think you know that is certainly tried to that is weaved into the intention of the code is that the planning official does have the ability to say you know the fence needs to be moved to this location or um, the fence needs to be you know immo- movable and if it is adjusted throughout the phase of the project to allow equipment or materials to access the site, the planning official does need to be notified of that prior to it happening so there there is a lot of that built into the code already but i'm happy to look through that specific language and see if that was revised with the proposed code or if that is an option so thank you
3: Mm -hmm. thank you guys very very much and i i really appreciate especially on the short notice (laughs) it was and just for the whole council's understanding here i mean the we we got a call from Mayor Sweet and asked to talk about this. You know, John and I just a week ago, I think, and and it was like, I don't know, and then she wanted us to to get completely up to speed and then have us meet with them uh, again after this meeting to give them feedback on where we you know where we see concerns and it's somewhat problematic because we don't even know where the code's going to end up in some of the more challenging areas right so it's it's a it, it, you know it, like John said they really should we should have after this has gone for so long you'd think that they wouldn't be putting that kind of time constraint on the process but um, I guess if in fact the the mayor does uh, insist that they want to get some feedback from us before we're able to meet again, and review where it's at. Um, I, I'm I guess I'm wondering if the rest of the council has any concerns that haven't been expressed. If, if John and I were to uh, at least express the concerns that have been expressed here tonight, largely, you know, I, I'd say John and I have probably raised more questions than the rest of you combined. Um, do any of you have any? Would you be have any objections to us at least sharing those concerns with the count with the uh, mayor and deputy mayor? If you do, I I want to know about it. I you know, we're not going to we we can't presume to speak for the entire council, but at least um, you know, try to represent where we think the the main concerns would be. And it's it's a
2: I would think that's appropriate. Uh, and but from the schedule that Jeremy put up, it looked like the uh, February 15th council would get kind of the, the latest draft. Yeah. Uh, and then I think it was something going into <clears throat> March when they actually may have an opportunity to then actually adopt it. We would meet at the end of February. So there may be an opportunity to at least get briefed on where it stands at that point
3: that would it would be ideal and I, and mm. that would be the, that that would be my ask if they can allow us to wait until you know our our february meeting to give them more specifics i think that would be preferable but if not i'm i'm hoping that you would be comfortable with john and i at least having that conversation with them if she insists that we uh, get give, give them feedback before our meeting any no, objections no
7: no i think that's a great idea it's
3: not great it's just making the best of a bad situation
7: you're doing it because you do you explain it all so well
3: we'll try okay thank you for that vote of confidence from now we're running late so let's move on and thank you guys so much katie great meeting great working with you for uh, this meeting
1: yeah great to meet everybody
3: Sorry, we kept
2: you up. I'm
1: getting, I'm getting used to it now.
2: Okay. (laughs) And welcome to the city. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, thank you.
1: (laughs) Have a great night, everyone.
3: Okay. So we now have uh, the overview of high performance building standards.
9: Good evening, Houghton Community Council. Let me make sure I got this right for you here. Can everybody see this okay? And can you hear me okay? Great. Uh, I'm David Barnes. I'm um, with the planning and building department. I'm a senior planner and I had the pleasure and privilege to be working on the sustainability master plan in 2019 and got it adopted in 2020. Um, I spent last year working on the mass Moss Bay neighborhood plan update. And uh, now I'm back to start working on implementation of this, uh, this wonderful plan. So um, tonight, the goal is to give you a briefing on the approach the high performance building standards. Um, to present the code amendment principles and to answer any questions I can prior to the public hearing. <clears throat> um, so the this was um, this actual action, um, you know, getting high-performing building codes onto the zoning code, into the zoning code on the books was um, in the 2021-2022 planning work program. Um and it was also authorized um, as an early implementation um, action to the SMP because of the magnitude of its impact for um, really uh, you know, l- large projects have impacts on the city as you're, you're well aware. Um, so we're trying to really minimize that. Um, and so I've already briefed council on, on this and I was instructed to proceed with getting these code amendments adopted. Because they're hypercritical to reducing our emissions in the city. Okay, um, so the goals that are driving um, you know the high performing building um, standards are um, goal B one B I two increasing the resilience in the built environment by incentivizing or mandating. Um, Net zero energy building—that's what's really driving this. We're really trying to get to the point where we're the buildings that we build in Kirkland are not, <clears throat> in, you know, exacerbating the emissions that we're seeing, um, and especially as I mentioned, large projects tend to have even more impact. So we're really trying to get to net zero sooner than later. Um, the major action is to like um, put a, a code into the zoning code to that um somebody would um actually be looking at when they would approach uh the council or in the case of jurisdiction um you know a large project um, that we would have something centrally located that um encourages incentivizes or in some cases mandates um high-performing buildings um one of the things that comes along with high-performing buildings and we'll, we'll talk about the definition, definitions in a moment, um, but what, what comes along with the certifications that are tied into high-performing buildings is oftentimes reduced water usage, um, a higher indoor air quality, more durable materials, um, kinder uh, um, action on the site and so forth, and more recycling um, and reuse of materials. So, um, not only is this action to get the high-performing codes on the books um, in the actual sustainability master plan, but obviously it's in the comprehensive plan. I worked on this in 2015. So it certainly kind of fits in all of our policy languages are supporting um, this notion of getting to net zero and reducing the carbon impacts of buildings have um, on our community. So um, if you're wondering, do we have, you know, existing requirements for green building or higher performing requirements? Why? Yes, we do. Um, we have in the Hank two zone, we require five star built green lead gold certified or living building challenge certified. So these are not something that is actually new in many of the zones there are these requirements in the Hank one zone. There's you know, also a similar um, requirement. Um, And probably for a number of you that were um, around when we um, ended up, when you ended up up zoning the YBD1 zone where the South Kirkland Park and Ride is, um, they asked for additional development capacity and other things. But then we ended up creating uh, a mandatory green building, also known as like this high performing green building standards, um, which, you know, Oftentimes there's a trade-off there going on and, um, you know, like if they're paying more money for more efficient equipment or something like that, but they're offsetting it with what they're getting in additional development capacity. Um, some of the other areas in the Kirkland Zoning Code um, 3020 um, for um, transit-oriented development, um, the Finn Hill Neighborhood Zone. Um, We actually even have green building um, uh, certifications discussed um, when you want to approach the city for a PUD or a planned unit development in chapter 125. Um, Certainly, um, you're aware that Kirkland Urban, um, actually built a very sustainable building and um, they asked for things. And then they also had to mandatorily um, do lead um, gold, corn shell for their buildings amongst other things. And the bridal trails um <clears throat> there's uh you, i i think you've been briefed on it but maybe not but um scott Gooter is working on it and that's in process because there's actually some development asks there so there will be um some mandatory high performing or green building standards there as well so what is a high performing building and when would we require this um so high performing buildings they deliver a higher more relatively higher level of energy efficiency performance than required by the code or other regulations. Um, Oftentimes those buildings are more water efficient, like I said, um, less uh, resource intensive perhaps, um, and, and, and do other really great things as well as far as those certifications go. Now net zero buildings are taking that to a whole new level not only are those buildings really energy efficient, they use very little energy, but they produce as much energy as the buildings use over an annual basis. So, um, you know, then they have to do it over an annual basis because um, if they're using solar, for example, you know, um, in in the kind of like November, December, January, February, there's kind of like less light And so, but in the rest of the year, there's plenty of light. And if they've designed their building properly um, and it's really efficient, they can actually um, kind of net that out. That's why they call those net zero energy buildings. So um, as I mentioned earlier, the the high performing standards would be required when an applicant is seeking more than code allows, or um, in the case if it's already required in the zoning code, as we previously discussed in those zones on the previous slide, Um, What we would do with places where it's already required, we were trying to establish one place in the code, centralized place, chapter 115, where we can just point to and say, this is the requirement rather than having for every code having a different standard or and then having when those codes need to be updated, maybe the standard should be increased or whatever. Um, We don't have to go to 20 different zones and just change everything we change it in one place and then those um, places in the code where um, we just make a reference to that one place in the code Um, so how would that play out for future up zones in houghton Um, staff would bring a proposal um, from a developer or or whatever and um, and then we would ask the um, community council if the high performing um, building standards should be applied. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. When, and we would hope they would be. Um, so you might be interested in how these buildings are certified. Does the city certify them? No. We use an independent third-party programs. Pretty much all the major players like Built Green, which is a master builder's uh, um, derived uh, green arm of their side of their business. Um, product. We've got lead Platinum from the United States Green Building um, Council. The Living Building Challenge, which is a, which is a well-known challenge, started here. Um, and and uh, it has a building in Seattle um, called the, the Bullet Foundation Building. Um, those building, That building is a really um, good example of where we might go way in the future, but um, that is a really hard challenge. That's why they call it challenge. That kind of a building has to produce all its own water collect and and manage and produce all its own water has has to be able to process all its own waste and has to um um, procure all its own energy from the site Um, another third-party program what we intend to use is passive house and that started in germany and essentially what the passive house is is they create wall systems that are so thick i think it's like 12 inches that it's hard (laughs) for um you it to get hot or cold in the house, as long as there's the proper mechanical equipment, making the, the air changes coming into the, um, the building so that people can breathe, you know, um, and which they do. So the city just basically relies upon this third party um, verifier and gets <clears throat> um, confirmation. First of all, that, that they have looked at the plans they f- they know that they can achieve the, the certification this higher performing certification, and then we have a check in point um, like a midpoint, and then we um, at the end before we do CFO, um, we ask for you know proof that they're going to um, achieve a particular certification. Um, some additional performance standards that we would we are intend to put in place with the high performing um, codes are achieving the maximum density of the site when it's required in the zone, providing an embodied carbon assessment, um, ensuring the development is electric vehicle ready. Some A lot of places in the code are requiring it, but if it's not, we want it to be ready. And what that means is that maybe you don't have the chargers in place for your development, but you have the conduit run and the wires ready to go get to where they need to get to so that somebody doesn't have to dig up a parking lot or, you know, kind of do some crazy machinations to um, get um, um, the building actually electric vehicle um, uh, beyond ready, but actually put the chargers in place. And we're already starting to see that. um, A lot of the buildings, I just toured the building on third and central, the park building or the Bartels is on the bottom. And they, they are like, have like Every few stalls you start you see these charging stations, and they also um, ran the conduit along the walls uh, on the um, along the concrete walls. Um, so that as they grow and get more people in there and more people with electric cars, they can just pull right off of that. Um, and they've made space in the bo- their electric box for that, too. Um, and last but not least, uh, the performance standard we're really keen on is requiring the building or development to be net zero energy certified. And so what that would take is, is that somebody would have to show that they are um, able to produce as much energy as the building uses over a year. In order to get the certification, they kind of have to go a year past the um, uh, CFO because they need to show us. And then we're gonna um, ask them to provide us an annual report for five years, just to make sure that they're continuing on with that certification. <clears throat> wow, I got to questions. <laughs> I must be talking fast. <laughs> so I think I'll pause right now and take some questions. And I see Betsy Pringle.
7: Hi. Um, um, first of all, I'm all I'm I'm for it. I'm all I'm for these, these wonderful energy-saving buildings. Um, I think... <clears throat> just I just want to make sure that this gets part of the discussion because I know that sometimes there can be <clears throat> such great goals for the future that you know like let's take down you know these these buildings in downtown Kirkland and put up these uh, energy efficient buildings and these lead certified buildings and all of that. However, <clears throat> I just want to make sure that there's there's environmental costs in new buildings. And that the National Trust and other organizations have done a lot of work on this. And and they say that the most environmentally, environmentally friendly building is one that's already existing. And that new buildings, especially new high rise development stuff, the amount of energy that goes into building it, it takes 10 to 80 years to offset that energy. So when you talk about your net energy, that's looking at the building, but it's not looking at all the BTUs, all the energy that went into building that building. So I just don't want us to get so gung home on um, got to have all these new buildings without realizing that maybe a lot of the buildings that we have, it, 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 we might be able to keep our energy and, consumption down by just keeping the old buildings. And like you said, maybe doing some retrofitting, maybe water retention, maybe upgrading electric and stuff like that. But just, I think that needs to be also part
9: of our green building. Yeah. The point is well taken Betsy. And that's why I talked about embodied carbon. We're requiring an assessment. That's what's starting to happen now in general. And so what the embodied carbon assessment looks at is what's on site right now that you may be taking down, what can be reused, what can be salvaged, you know, all the, and what's, and then they put a number on it. It's actually gotten really sophisticated um, um, right now. And we also look at, um, you know, what the the embodied carbon of, the operational carbon actually is what they call it. And that is, um, what is it gonna take to operate this building? Um, but I'm glad you brought it up. A lot of those things um, like the store there are historical requirements in some cases. Um, there's market forces that are beyond all of us you know if somebody you know something becomes so valuable and somebody says I'm going to tear this down what we'd like to see done <clears throat> is we'd like to see some of those materials be reused and recycled and so forth and but we're trying to also build the marketplace for that and we're working regionally to make that happen. but everything you said was, point well taken um and um these codes are going to really influence these larger projects um that they're not the project usually the small projects and so forth um so um you know right. i think that we're and gonna,
7: and yeah for places we're gonna, like Bodum lake and kirkland urban when it's a complete re, redo right but sometimes if it ain't broke don't fix it because it's you, you gotcha may be causing damage that you may be causing uh, environmental damage that you don't realize you are so okay thank you thank you
9: mr. Kepler. Thank you David
7: sure very
4: sure. nice presentation I know you're very passionate about this and it shows um, Uh, Some questions that I have, I'm looking at your uh, BI goal 1.1 versus 1.2. 1.1 starts out by talking about incentivizing, 1.2 then uses the word requiring. And so my question is, where and when do you cross the threshold of incentivizing versus requiring? And um, y- you know, it, I don't know how that flushes out. And I am a giant proponent in incentivizing because I can. I often see the unintended consequences of requiring, as Betsy just mentioned, one. You know, gee whiz, you'll never get this up to the current standard, so we got to tear it down and rebuild the whole thing. Um, so uh, that's that's one question. Um, Another question that I have is whether it's incentivizing or requiring. How do these overlap with the uh, other programs that we have, like affordability, etc.? We we, in code language today, and we all know and understand this. We, we're we're growing these independent silos of thought that don't always connect well with each other. And while these are wonderful goals, um, it is astonishing to me the number of people that in their soul believe they're true environmentalists and when they understand the cost of implementing some of these things, they simply say never mind. And I just I don't understand how if somebody is that passionate about it. Can just say temper mind. I mean, it it always floors me, but it is the reality, of, fi- of finances. I mean, it's the reality of it. So, I, I think understanding these and you know making the incentive nice enough to offset, um, you know the cost and affordability was really really important to study, and to that I'd like to bring to just to a point you'd mentioned the word market forces. Two things happened that that I've noticed in the past. Uh, Years ago, the uh, heating and ventilation companies put on a very big marketing program to promote, at the time, 92% efficient furnaces. Um, They did this on a national level. Uh, At the time, everything was 84%. Of course, now everything is 96, 97, 98% efficient. But um, what happened was the marketplace, all of a sudden understood that they wanted better performing stuff. And the marketplace went into the development community and demanded, we, we don't want this lesser thing, we want the better thing. Um, and so that, that's a way through sort of grassroots that it just happened. The other example is, you um, uh, assembled floor joy system. Uh, Trust Joyce was a company that came up with a floor system that worked better than cut lumber. And they marketed that heavily and the marketplace responded and the marketplace went to the development community and demanded that that be in their marketplace because it was a better performing product. So I, I really think you're onto something about You know, getting the marketplace to say, and I don't know what it is, David, whether it's green roofs or better flushing toilets or what whatever it is, I I think that's a really, really good way to go. Um, The next item that I have is you mentioned once in your presentation zoning code. I'd like the city to really consider what belongs in the building code and what belongs in the zoning code. When you, because when you talk about building performance standards, that almost seems to be a building code to me or a, an independent code that can be uh, reviewed by the building department. Because currently the energy code is not looked at by the zoning code at all. or in the planning department. It's strictly looked at in the building department. And so the um, energy code talks an awful lot about some of the things that would be in your code, but, but not everything. And so um, I, I think the city wants to look at that and then possibly also talk with the people at Washington State University, which sort of um, monitor and produce the state energy code in terms of how some of the other items could get um, like water-saving toilets, because that's part of energy, right? Because how we how we deal with water takes energy, um, and so maybe look at some overlap there, just as a comment. Um, I wrote down retrofit standards, Betsy Pringle, so uh, uh, jumped on that already. So I'll leave that leave that go. Um, got that done. The last item when in your uh, program options for uh, incentives, you have a list on page five um, and it's the bulleted items in the middle of the page. I would like you to consider coverage as one of those items. Coverage is always the thing that is, is the hardest to deal with. It's much harder to deal with in floor area re- ratio. Oftentimes design creatures, uh, you know, the designers of the world like to spread things out and soften things. And um, you know they can't, they get a bad rap for it that everything looks like a box. Well, oftentimes they need to do that simply for coverage reasons. Sometimes you can't do things like put garages in the back of the home because uh, you don't have enough coverage available to put a driveway all the way to the back of the house. That might allow us to save some trees in the front yard to meet the tree code uh, that sort of thing now obviously now we're into public work standards and drainage standards because we have to capture the rain and collect it and convey it and uh, that sort of thing so but i think coverage is one of those things that is really really important on the incentive program and i think david that was my comments thank you
9: do you want any response John. The only response, maybe, is the difference
4: between incentivizing and requiring. Okay. We're, we're, what's the threshold as I work?
9: Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I wrote down all of these. Um, and so, um, incentivizing, uh, you know, incentivizing works great when uh, you have something to give and uh, somebody, you know, wants that um and you know we do we do have a green building program that we're kind of in the works right now um that you that used to only um incentivize single family homes and now we're expanding to all building types and so I'm, I'm working on a separate project but that's kind of related to this um r- simultaneously right now so um, and what we worked with the master builders and built green and kind of look, talked to the residential building code council at, at the master builders and found that a really great incentive to get these higher performing certifications for these different buildings is a faster review. So our intent is to, re, to, to expand that to all building types. Um, and, and, um, Case in point, I, I talked to somebody in the city of Seattle that's been running a similar program for about 10 years. Only 20% of the buildings that are actually eligible to, to take advantage of the incentive programs actually ever apply for them. So 80% just kind of go off somewhere else and don't do whatever they do. Um, on the require side of the house, um, we're talking about at this point, um, you know, the magnitude of some of these developments are, are pretty big and these buildings are gonna be around for a long time. We're expecting to, you know, be carbon neutral, net zero within a short timeline. And if we are like saying, do what you want, that's fine. But what we're saying is, is um, we'll give you something. You ask us for development capacity, upzoning, that kind of thing. And in return, we will require. So it, it's kind of interesting. It's like, it's almost like we're giving them incentive, but you know, their they're cost shifting is what's happening. So it actually does, um, it, it, it does really help and work out between the, the true just incentivize, here's the program, and then codifying um, this other things. And that's what we're talking about today is putting it in the code. And when they come to us and say, we would like this, we say, okay, we'll consider it. And if we do, then you'll do this standard. So we, we're actually between these two things, getting more of the market to play with us and get us to where we need to get from our codes. But I, I, I understand what you were saying earlier. Um, one quick other little thing on the affordability aspect, cause that is always a hard thing to think about, especially affordable housing. Do I provide housing or do I not? I have less housing and I have more efficient housing. Um, Well, you don't have to make the choice now. Um, Recently in Snohomish County, somebody built 75 units and the state paid them a million dollars to create net zero energy units. So I'm finally, it's like this has taken a long time for the things to come around, but it's finally starting to happen. And I think that people are understanding that these, uh, the operational costs for folks living in these um, uh, units, um, it's really important that they're not paying really high bills. And that's important that you you know make your unit net zero energy to lower those costs. And also in many cases, um, they're providing like um, heat pumps. So they're actually getting cooling too. So that's kind of important with these heat dome events that we've been having. Um, and I think I'm going to stop there. I think next year we're going to be working on a major retrofit program because I hear everything you're saying. And I agree. That's the elephant in the room. The new buildings are great, but there's a lot of new, old buildings that need, help and need to be retrofitted. So I hope to work on that in the coming years. So, does that sound good, John? Okay, all right, thank you. I think we've got, Sounds great. Yep. I appreciate it so much. Yep. Okay, we've so got we, yep. we got two more. We got Larry and Ruth I, that I see with their hands raised. Larry.
2: Thanks, Dave. Uh, yep. this- it was very interesting and I'm glad you went into the presentation made, much, made reading the packet a lot more meaningful. But I was just interested in you had some examples from master builders or shoreline and others on what some of these incentives are. You say density bonus and parking reductions and other types of stuff. Can you give an order of magnitude? Is it like 10% more density bonus or is it 50% more? you know, how are we going to, what's the trade-off, I guess, uh, from a land use perspective uh, and how it fits in with the existing communities and, and other types of stuff. Obviously, if you have a blank piece of property, that's one thing. But if you're in a property that's surrounded by existing neighborhoods or other types of stuff in here, it can certainly affect uh, everything that's going on around it if we need to give a lot more density and maybe that spurs more redevelopment and changes the zoning code but i just want or land use code just kind of interested in what others have been doing
9: yeah good question um so i was just trying to point we're always looking at what regional leaders are doing and shoreline and seattle have been doing some phenomenal things so we we i was putting i put that in the packet so you could see it to see what others were doing we kind of went back to the uh, master builders and talked to them locally and asked them for their laundry list of kind of potential incentives or whatever and then we also looked at what we actually could get on the books quickly and what we could give and what we realized that we could give quite easily was a faster review time so we actually didn't get to the density bonuses for this um, voluntary um, uh, green building program that I'm also simultaneously working on besides this code. Um, we didn't get there, but um, we did um, kind of ground truth the fact that a faster review time, 50% faster review time, especially in a jurisdiction that many people have pointed out how expensive things are, lands are expensive, so that time is money, you know, and so it's still a really valuable incentive and they kind of gave us the thumbs up on that. Um, so those were just examples, Larry. And those may be things that, you know, we could be looking at in the future with future incentivized programs. But right now we're trying to expand that voluntary program. We're also right today trying to get this high performance code on the books in the zoning code as well. So we're trying to get it on a, a, from a voluntary incentive approach and also from a codified approach to um, between those two things. Um, but, you know, the other things you're talking about density and stuff like that. I mean, you know, I if we go that route at some point in the future, we would have to do the analysis to make sure that we're not losing more than we're gaining. So that, that's the point I take away from what you were saying. Yeah. Thanks. So much. Thank you. Ruth, what can I ask for you answer for you?
7: Thank you very much. Just a real quick question. Goal BI-1, certify all new construction uh, as high performance, and that includes um, single-family homes. So you're talking about large complexes, but as more, and you answered part of it in the affordable housing, because is this going to be required for all new construction? Anyone
6: now, that when this goes into implementation, anyone that um, wants to build a home has to be... uh, submitting under this high-performing green building and what is that going to do to the cost of a single-family home?
9: Yeah, good good question. I think the packet that I shared with you was a previous packet that council had seen and um, it is BI1 is not on this slide that we're looking at right now. Um, That is, that's something we want to see in the future and it's a goal. And then for every goal that we have in the sustainability master plan, we have a corresponding action. So for example, in this one, the one that I'm working on right now with the high performing codes and putting in the code, the goal is to get to net zero energy. Um, by 2025 have 50% of these larger developments to be net zero by 2030, hundred percent. And this is one way we could get to it. But I realize that that's not gonna get us all the way there, but we have to get something on the books to. As things still happen, like these larger development projects, we need to make sure that they're net zero um, uh, energy certified. Um, But at this point, we're not requiring anybody to build a net zero building in a single family zone. What I can tell you from what I know already, and probably Mr. Kapler knows this too, but there are projections by 2030 that you're almost going to have to build a net zero building anyway to get it built new buildings. It's 2030, 2031 because every couple years or code cycle, the energy code ratchets up and that's at the state level. We don't have control over um, the energy code um, for uh, residential um, at, at the city of Kirkland. We have to go to the state and then they ratchet up. They kind of follow Seattle and Seattle does these things. And then they kind of ratchet it up and so forth. So um, yeah, and goals are goals. And, you know, you might find that um, you're not getting your traction with your goal. So you might have to try another action to try to get there. Um, But one of the things we're trying to do, I'm going to roll it back to incentivizing because one of the things we've been talking about the master builders with is that, hey, we've got this other program, this voluntary incentivized program and we're trying to get people to net zero energy, but we know that by 2030, 31, they're gonna to have to do it anyway. We're trying to incentivize it by giving faster reviews now so that the learning curve and the trades people and everything, it all, it'll be not a surprise in 2030, 2031 when they have to do it. It'll be like, wow, Kirkland and you know Seattle and the East side and all these other um, forward-thinking um, cities incentivized it. And we got a good chunk of people doing the work that gets us to that net zero. And so it's not so scary. But when you look at it from this, you know, right now, you might like, oh, how do we get there? Well, you have to build that kind of um, that capacity. And that's what we hope to do is to build that capacity. Thank you.
8: Just to be, I want to make sure we're all super clear on the, the, um, so this goes to a public hearing. The intent here is like, so in the future, you have two kind of decision points, right? You have somebody comes to the city and says, "I want to upzone my property here. I want to plan the development for exceptions to the code." So you have a that's a decision that would come to you know in this case, if it, uh like a South Park Park and Ride or something, where a rezone came to you to increase the development capacity. So that's a decision that the city would have to make, yes or no on that kind of land use decision. So what we're trying to do right now is put into place the code that in most cases as it's, it has been um for the last uh five seven years so when we're doing such a rezone or increasing that development capacity there's also an expectation of green building so the, this code says so if somebody comes and asks for rezone in the future you'd say yeah but going into it you better understand that this is the this is the green building the high performance code that we will impose on you with that decision. So if we rezone your property, we will also expect it to be um, high performing green building. So it's not, it doesn't apply to anything that's in the ground right now. It doesn't apply to something where somebody's not asking for an exception to the rules. It's really that fairly limited case. And so to David's point, it doesn't, that action doesn't get us all the way to meeting the goal, but um, it's a step in the right direction.
9: John, is your hand still up? Okay, I just wanna make sure.
4: Yeah, one more thing. Okay. Um, your question to us, is this the right approach, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we've talked some about that, but I, I might just suggest, um, and I think you'd be very surprised by the answers. Uh, there's been so many residential products built in the last year that it might behoove you to call Uh, number one a group of builders and ask them two questions of some of the things in this incentivized group or mandatory group what's the hardest to implement what's the easiest to implement and they i think might be able to give you some insight on on the difficult things and the simple things um So you could incentivize the simple things and require the hard things, I guess. I don't know how you do it, but the second group possibly is people that have moved into a new home. Um, uh, Many of these people surprisingly are first homeowners, even in Kirkland and ask them of some of the energy saving things in their home. What are they happy to have gotten or even surprised to have gotten? But a lot of people don't know they have a water savings toilet because the realtors don't know to you know sell that in the process. So so ask the people what's important to them. And this gets back to your marketing idea of you know, how how do you create a, a marketing strategy to put an importance on this so the consumer base wants it and then they'll build it. And the third group of people possibly to talk to are people that have moved here from out of area that are new to the Pacific Northwest. They come from different standards, different methods, different ideologies of building different components, parts and pieces. And ask them of the home that you've moved into, what's really different from where you came from in upstate New York, where it's really cold? What's here that surprised you on energy saving? Just, you could do your own research. I don't think it would take many people just to get an idea of of what's important to people, what do they know, what do they understand, what's hard and easy for builders to put in, and that might help you tailor your incentives list.
9: Okay, that's all. It. Thank you. Yep.
3: Excellent. Any other questions for David? David, excellent job. Appreciate how you and you did it really well timing wise too. appreciate it. I thought this thing could go on a lot longer. So
9: no, I I appreciate the comments. Um, I'll just kind of finish with this slide. Um, I'm going to the planning commission on um, Thursday. So thank you for letting me test run today. (laughs) Um, And then also um, we're preparing. I'm going to be preparing for a joint planning commission and hopefully Houghton community council hearing on February 24th. And um, I was wondering if either you guys had your calendars and you could confirm that, or we can um, have uh, staff call and poll you. But if you know you're available on Thursday, February 24th, then we could lock that down um, now. Um,
3: Does everybody have access to their calendars? We could quickly check that.
9: John's got a thumbs up. Right back. <laughs> Larry's got a thumbs up. Awesome. I'm gonna let Ruth um, Bill. okay. Kristen, do you? Uh,
0: I have a potential conflict okay that I will try to remove. Okay.
3: yeah i can do it
9: okay Okay. perfect i can too okay thank you very much i'm sorry i didn't see there you are betty okay great (laughs) i gotta flip through all these (laughs) pictures um okay so great um anyway um so then after that hearing um taking what we learned from that we'll go to city council on march 15th for adoption um, this is kind of a pretty fast turnaround, but um, we want to show some early wins on this SMP. And then uh, I will come back to Houghton Community Council for final action after that. So excellent. That's my last slide. Um, thanks for listening and all of your feedback. I appreciate it. Thank you, David. Thank you. Good luck, Good luck
3: with the Planning Commission.
9: Yeah, thank you. <laughs> okay. You're welcome to listen in right. if you want. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
4: And don't
9: All right. let him push you around, David. Okay, okay. <laughs> All right.
3: Okay, we've got one more item on our agenda. Election of officers. Um, and as you will, as any of you have been around know, for the, at least the last 10 years, I've prefaced this election process by uh, encouraging anybody else who wants to serve as president to please uh, step up and, and take it on. And as much as I I would welcome that, uh, I think this is the one year where I'm not sure that it's a good idea. Uh, in my case, I, I'm scheduled to speak as the chair uh, to the legislature this week, and um, and also we've got this, the mayors seeking us, giving them feedback on the tree code. So for one time, I really think I do aspire to be reelected either as pre- as the chair or vice chair. Um, and so that's all I'm gonna say at this point that I'm gonna open the nominations for the chair of the Holman Community Council. Uh, I'll second. second. <laughs> Are there any other nominations? John, you got your hand up, or is that inadvertent? <laughs>
4: oh no, I, I raised my hand to talk so I could nominate you.
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay, Like uh, I I won't belabor this. So if you guys are okay with it, I uh, I will close nominations, and by acclamation, we can uh, elect me. No, we need to speak. First. Seems a little self-serving, but I just—it's a late night, and I kind of yeah. want to get on with it. So me too. Any any objections? All in favor?
7: Aye. 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 Okay, Aye.
3: thank you guys. I appreciate the vote of confidence. And hopefully, next year we will not be in this situation and somebody else will step up.
2: We, uh, uh, I know, sure we still will be in this. Yeah, position. really. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: now, I'll open the nominations for vice chair. I
6: nominate John Kepler.
3: Uh, I'll second. I 2nd i I'll 2nd <laughs> all right. Any other nominations? Nominations. Nominations. We're going to close nominations, and uh, we will by acclamation vote to approve John as vice chair. All in favor, say aye. Aye. aye.
4: aye.
3: Opposed? Aye. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank that was. You all very much. Thank you, guys. Uh, yeah, like Larry says, I hope we actually have, have <laughs> elections next year. So
8: and as long With as Rick this. keeps serving as chair, I'll keep forgetting to put it on the agenda for nominations.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Jerry. thanks, Jeremy. Uh, I don't think we have any other items on the agenda and it's late night. And so I am, unless anybody objects, going to call this meeting adjourned. Thank you. Thank you
8: all for thank your experience.
7: Hi, thank
3: you. Good night everybody.